I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to this week's Failed British Podcast. I'm Steve Norn. I'm joined by James Diamond. Hello. And Owen Hughes. Hello. As we take a look through the last week or so in film. Um, but we'll start off with the quiz, as usual, where I'm getting absolutely trounced by James. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yes, yeah, so I, I beat you last week. Uh, and and let's just talk. And I said that both of you had to watch uh, the final member on Netflix. Uh, I believe Owen, uh, you held your part of the bargain up there. I did. So Steve, what happened? I completely. I didn't avoid it on purpose. <laughs> I promise you. I just completely. It just completely slipped my mind that I was meant to watch a, a documentary about animal willies. Yeah. Well. Well, the documentary is mainly about, uh, of course, the search for the first human. Uh, specimen for the penis museum in Iceland. Oh, what did you think? Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't really. Uh, okay, it was it was quite interesting as a story of how um, crazy some people are. I think hmm. how desperate this guy was to have some level of fame, and it never. It did for me. The American guy. The American guy. It didn't yeah. really give enough insight into why he was doing that. You kind of picked up a little bit about to do with the background with his wife, and yeah. that it was just this playful thing. But why he was obsessing quite so much over it was it was just wasn't as in depth as I wanted it to be. Um, otherwise, it was quite entertaining in a weird sort of way. Isn't Pal Aronson just? the most awesome old bloke. I wish he was my granddad. He's brilliant. Uh, anyone who's a professional explorer <laughs> is a legend. Anyway, yeah. uh, I, I was thinking, because I didn't get, I was planning to rewatch it this week and I didn't really get a chance because I've actually been watching loads of films, which is, uh, has been a rarity for me in recent <laughs> weeks. But um, uh, yeah, no, I'd, I, I, I've thought about it today and I thought, actually, it's a bit like um, one of those stories they used to show on Eurotrash, yeah. like in between the bits with, um, uh, Jean-Paul Gaultier and the other fellow. And Jones. Uh, yeah, uh, chatting away. And then they go and do like a kind of 10-minute feature. And this this is one of those 10-minute features stretched out to 75 minutes. At least it's only 75 mm. minutes. But I, honestly, I, I just really enjoy it. I just, I loved the um, the vibe of it. It had a very, had a very offbeat, kind of Louis Theroux-esque as well vibe about weird people doing yeah. weird things and and I, I did love the fact that the, you know the, the guy who at the beginning seems like a mad eccentric because he's running a penis museum actually is the kind of grounded center of the film and he just starts getting so annoyed and stressed out with all these weirdos mm. and they're extreme and uh, I, I like that kind of dichotomy I thought it lost its way a little bit towards the end but I, I really enjoyed it and I'm 
I'm glad you didn't find it horrific. I <laughs> no, I could keep watching it. Although there were some images which were just yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Did not need to see that. Yeah. So um, anyone who's listening who can think of a suitable forfeit for Steve for having not watched it, and as uh, you know, to be a, a warning to those who lose out in the quiz in future as well. Uh, that this will be taken seriously. Please drop us a line at the usual places and let us know it should what we can do. should at least start on minus one points in this quiz, I think, <laughs> just to give me a boost. <laughs> Poor Steve. No, I think that'd be, that's quite harsh. James will just pick some French actor that I've never heard of. <laughs> yeah, he's already at a disadvantage already, isn't he? But Okay, so anyway, that was the final... Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, final movie, which is on Netflix UK for anyone who is interested in it. Honestly, it's a it's a diverting way to spend seventy five minutes. Um, one to, one to watch with your significant other. Uh, I, I don't know. To, <laughs> actually, to be fair, there's nothing there that will put most people to shame. Put it that yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so don't worry about there's, that. There's a couple of moments which it might be embarrassing if you're watching with family. I guess. Yes. Why would nothing? Why? Why on earth would you put that on with your family? Um, why would Why would that ever happen? It's a fair point. True. It's a fair point, I suppose. Yeah. It's not going to Maybe. appear on the most watched on Facebook list anyway on Netflix. Yeah, I don't if, think. if you're watching that of your family and you've decided to put it on with your family, I'm, I'm wagering that nothing's going to embarrass you. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a fair point. I have interest, Owen. Did you turn off your sharing for it, or will your friend will it pop up on your feed that your friends uh, will have seen that you've watched the final member? I don't have anything pop up on the Facebook. Uh, so you're all secret. You're secret. I'm, I'm quite social <laughs> about like every other thing that I watch, but for some reason it's because the Netflix account is in my wife's name. Uh, so because I uh, use my free trial, you see, and then uh, when we wanted to watch Arrested Development, I used her free trial. It's in her name, and it got shared to everyone. Everyone's going to think your wife's watched it. <laughs> You've missed yeah. the trick. I know. Yeah. Anyway, quiz. Yeah. Um, okay, so yeah, as, as, here we go. I've not done not done the quiz before, so it's quite exciting. Okay, I'm going to start off here. Last time uh, involved in a quiz, it didn't go very well, did it? Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Carl Vaggio <laughs> thank you <laughs> alright ok here we go in 1992 The Hand That Rocks the Cradle no ok ok uh, 1993 Body of Evidence never heard of it 1993 as well The Fugitive oh is, is it Harrison yeah. Ford it is not Harrison Ooh, Ford. It's a pretty obvious guess. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been quite a jump. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. The, the guy who played the janitor in Scrubs, whose name I can't remember. No, it is not him. No. Bit of a, bit of a um, wild guess. <laughs> in 1997, Jurassic Park, The Lost World. Oh. Trying to think. Yeah. It's not... Pete Postlethwaite, is it? It is not Pete Postlethwaite. Owen. In 1990s, it, oh, yeah. Is it Jeff Goldblum? No, it's not Jeff Goldblum. In 1997, Steve. Boogie Nights. Steve. Yes. Vince Vaughn. No. Wrong gender. <laughs> Wrong gender. Okay. So, yeah, 1997, Boogie Nights. Who was female in that? 
1998, The Big Lebowski. I know who it is. I just don't know her name. <laughs> I can't think of any women that I'd recognise a name of in Draft Part 2. In 2001. Is it, oh, is it Julianne Moore? It is Julianne yes, Moore, yeah. I've just seen her in Carrie. Oh, yes. yes. She was in Draft Part 2. Yeah. yeah. She was also in The Fugitive in this tiny little part. She's one of the um, uh, doctors that he goes to at the hospital who helps him in about two scenes. That's the quiz then. Owen is one nil up. Uh, On to to the news now. And we had some sad news in the world of film this week with Paul Walker passing away in tragic circumstances. Paul Walker, the star of the Fast and Furious films, among others. Yeah, um, that was a really weird one, actually. It was kind of... I woke up on Sunday morning and went on Twitter and uh, lots of messages of condolence to Paul Walker and it just felt really surreal uh, because he was 40. Um, And then, yeah, it's just a really, really uh, sad thing. And it's one of those where, up until now, I I like the Fast and the Furious. In the last year... I've really got into the Fast and the Furious films. And I'll be honest, I've not seen him in anything outside of the Fast and the Furious films. And I may have even criticised him at time in the Fast and the Furious films. Um, but he was a big part of those films. And do you know what? It's really sad that it's taken something like this for me to actually then read a bit about him um, and actually see that he was doing some interesting things. And also just the fact that he was on his way from one charity... Uh, function to another um, and everything that seems to be coming out about him was that he was actually a really really nice down-to-earth bloke with a 15 year old daughter and that's the biggest tragedy of the whole thing is that you know that it, it's a young it's a young father who's left a family behind in in just not very nice circumstances at all I, I've not seen any of the pictures I've no wish to see any of the pictures and I think it is a bit uh, it's pretty disgusting, actually, that they were shared around so quickly on social media. But I suppose that's the world that we live in these days. But no, a, a, a real kind of a real tragedy in terms of a personal tragedy more than anything else. Yeah, it is very sad. Like I said, um, it was just it spread around Twitter so quickly. Those images, I didn't see them either. But it's just it reminded me a little bit of when we were talking about Grizzly Man quite recently, mm. the Werner Herzog film. And he said, yeah. he, he in that documentary, he didn't want to show any of the footage or play any of the audio to sort of, it would just be disrespectful. There was, mm. there was something about the culture of people who were very quickly downloading that image and sharing it, which, which was a bit yeah. sad, I think. Yeah. And then the snarky remarks and everything like yeah. that. And it's just, you know, I, I know, I know it sounds really old fashioned, but honestly, if you've got nothing nice to say, Shut up. Mm. Uh, yeah, that. Um, interestingly, uh, Fast and Furious 7 is still going to. There will be a delay, apparently, and no one seems to know how long it will be, but it is still going ahead, and, you know, that just goes to prove that in Hollywood the show must go on. Uh, you know, money talks and everything like that, and I'm assuming uh, it will pretty much go ahead as a tribute to, to Paul Walker. Uh, but John Ali with it. Uh, it was just about to go back. It they've been doing. They've been in pre-production, and it was about to go back into uh, production on Monday. I think it was. So yeah, really, really kind of 
terrible timing in that sense. Um, yeah, he just finished his last film, Brick Mansions, which is out later on. Oh, no, beginning of next year. That's in post-production at the moment. But yeah, 40-year-old, um, father of one. Real shame. Uh, away from that, there's always also mm. been um, some top 10 of the year film lists released. Uh, James, will talk us through that. Yeah, um, uh, I, I will just say the Empire have bought out their top 50, which seems like a big number to have. Um, in a, It seems a bit pointlessly big number to have in terms of the best of the year. Uh, it just makes me think that advertising spending may have had something to do with that. I don't know. Uh, who am I to besmirch uh, Empire? But they've also got Stoker in their top 10, which is an absolute travesty. <laughs> but anyway, um, it, I think the one that a lot of people do pay attention to um, is the BFI, the Sight and Sound top 10 of the year and the top 10 of the year really really interesting this year i think actually uh, a few british films on there mm. um first uh, number one the act of killing which i will be talking about later on in this podcast so i'm not going to say any more about that number two gravity which i thought very interesting um a a big budget film that's ended up on the the BFI sight and sound list, which never seems to happen. I can only assume it's because it's Alfonso Cuaron <laughs> and uh, and it's done something different. Uh, number three, Blue is the Warmest Colour, which I will also be talking about. See, I'm talking about some damn good films this week. Um, and then The Great Beauty, which I missed at four. Francis Ha, which I also watched this week, and I'm, I'm, I won't bother talking about it and what, we, what we've been watching. It was just like an episode of Girls that had no jokes and was directed by um, some kind of art student. Oh, it's so I did not like Francis Hart at all. Apologies out there to anyone who did like it. You always I've get heard a of, film like that popping up in these sight and sound lists, yeah, don't you? Yeah, and a lot of people seem to really enjoy it, but I just it bored me and I hated all the characters. It was just so bloody twee <laughs> and... Oh, no, no, not for me at all. I heard some um, comparisons to early Woody Allen. Uh, no, no, not at all. Uh, a Touch of Sin, a Chinese film that I've not seen, even, haven't even heard about. Mm. Upstream Colour, the new film from Shane Carruth, who did Primer, which has not shown anywhere near me so far. Um, so I've not had a chance to see that. I will try and see that. Selfish Giant, uh, directed by Cleo Barnard. That's apparently very, very good, and I'm looking forward to seeing that when I can get my hands on it. And then finally, uh, Nought, The End of History, which is a, a Philippines film. So there's a, a film from the Philippines and a film from Indonesia. Uh, in the well, uh, the act of killing is made in Indonesia, starring Indonesian people, but it's actually a kind of seven-way split in terms of its production countries. But um, yeah, in, interesting top ten, and I'm looking forward to seeing a few more on there anyway. Yeah, yeah. I I, I've probably only seen Gravity on that list. I I had the opportunity to see The Selfish Giant, um, and it was on. I think they had it on Blinkbox, and I could have rented it, and I used it instead to rent Hummingbird, the Jason Statham film. <laughs> so it just shows what kind of person I am, I suppose. But um, I've heard lots of good things about it. Mm. But I am surprised to see it on this list. I thought it was one of those that kind of flew under the radar a little bit. Mm. Yeah. No. It's 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 good to see it there. Definitely. Um, oh, oh, and just to let everyone know, in the next week or so, uh, we'll be launching our end-of-year poll. Uh, so everyone who's listened to our podcast or read our website is v free to vote in our end-of-year poll. 
uh, and that will be collated and compiled by me in my little stats dungeon, um, ready for the end of year show come around New Year's time. Yeah, it's not a list that I've seen many from. I've only seen Gravity. Um, try and see one or two more before the year's out, but I can just see it being typically a pretentious list of films that. that <laughs> The list just annoys me because it's got a, a film, rather than having nine and ten, it's got joint ninth, and instantly that just annoys me. <laughs> <laughs> it's because they do it, it's because they haven't got like thousands of voters, so it, it genuinely tied. That's that's how it happened. They've not done it to annoy you, Steve, I promise. I, I think they have. Okay. <laughs> anyway, uh, we'll have a break there, and we're back with what we've been watching soon. So what we've been watching this week uh, Owen, why don't you start us off As you're going back to uh, an old favourite of yours uh, Yeah, I am a little bit um, Well, first first before I do say that I'm just going to sort of give Jerry a pat on the back And say thanks very much Because he recommended Broadchurch On one of our TV episodes a while ago. I've had Steve talking about Breaking Bad, which I've gone back and watched and really enjoyed. Jerry's recommended Broadchurch. James recommended uh, Blackfish. So, yeah, let's all gather around and have a bit of a circle jerk for a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, yeah, great recommendations so far. But the film I'm actually going to talk about, um, yeah, it's quite right. I did go back to one of my old favourites. I watched a Jean-Claude Van Damme film called Six Bullets, which... um, from the DVD cover might put a lot of people off it's a very badly photoshopped image but it's probably the best Van Damme film that I've seen for years actually that he's made in years rather not that I've seen in years but one that he's made for years Um, directed by a guy called Ernie Barbarash which doesn't really mean anything to me he did I think he did the third film in the Cube series Um, did another film with Van Damme in 2011 which also features Scott Adkins um, which I've not actually what she's done, some other stuff with Cuba Gooding Jr. But pretty much, basically, what I'm trying to say is, he's a director I've got literally no experience of. So I wasn't quite sure what to expect from this. Um, the story itself, it starts off with uh, John claude looking an awful lot like Walter White from Breaking Bad. He's seemingly arranging a rather uh, unpleasant uh, rendezvous, if you like, in a seedy, grotty little club which is actually set inside this big, massive, posh house. But uh, anyway, he sort of, eventually he peels off his moustache and his beard, and aha, he's actually a mercenary who's there to save a young boy who's been used in some weird child sex ring. And then lots of explosions and gunfire later, it turns out the house actually had some young girls stuffed into the walls who were burned to death as a result of Van Damme's rather gung-ho style of action hero. So, um, at which point the tone of the film shifts a little bit because it sets itself up to be quite a bog-standard action thriller film, which you sort of roll your eyes at and think, that's another straight-to-video Van Damme actioner. Um, but, it, it, yeah, it shifts to something a lot darker and, and kind of twisted, although it's essentially a taken knockoff. I mean, it's a family who fly out to Moldova, their young daughter's kidnapped. Um, they drag this reluctant Jean-Claude Van Damme out of his retirement, uh, where he now works as a butcher to, to help find their kid, etc., etc. I mean, it does sound a bit cheap uh, and a bit of a rip-off. 
And in fairness, it does look rather cheap at times. You could tell they had very restrictive budget. Uh, and whilst the script with the, in regards to the dialogue isn't anything extraordinary either, I really, really enjoyed it. It was another one of those films where um, I was just looking to see what was on Love Film uh, Instant late one evening. It seemed like worth giving a go because it's got Van Damme in it. It's probably going to be okay, isn't it? Maybe. If not, it's, it doesn't really matter to me. Um, but I stayed up well past my bedtime watching it all. Um, it, it's just just really entertaining. It doesn't exactly have one main villain for the story either, which I think helps. It's kind of like a succession of bigger and badder characters and worse and worse situations. Although there are like gangsters in it that you kind of follow as the villains or the sort of gang itself as, as being the, the criminals of the film. But it's got a really good sort of flow and pace. It just uh, stuff's constantly happening, keeping things moving. It doesn't drag its heels at all, but it doesn't feel very um, lazy either. So it's yeah, it's it's quite entertaining the whole way through. Uh, actually, the, the the guy who plays the dad in it is a guy called Joe Flanagan, who is apparently really quite famous for his role in Stargate Atlantis, but it's something I've not really seen. He was all right actually. Oh, um, he plays like an MMA fighter in it, and he plays it quite believably. He looks the part, and he's you know some he, he has a lot of action scenes himself, and he he seems to do quite well in them. So I think um, you know credit to to the director there for for making those look quite good um yeah van damme actually again got to put in one of his better quality acting performances as opposed to just turning up and being van damme like he's done in a lot of his films of late like um did i talk about the universal soldier day of reckoning film on here yeah yeah yeah. so he you know he was all right in that but his very minor role again in ufo alien invasion which was an absolutely terrible film he just had a very minor part um, brilliant title as well yeah great title a little b-movie b british film which is sort of a comedy which isn't very funny um <laughs> and uh dragon eyes as well he was in that recently which it, it, his name is basically on the title so people go to actually see it yeah um but yeah i mean overall it, like I say it was very entertaining uh not really anywhere close to being as good as taken which is a film we've talked about a lot and i've said mm. before i really like taken uh, but it's in that sort of vein, in that mould, really. If you like Taken, you would probably like Six Bullets. It's worth watching, though, even if you aren't a mild Van Damme obsessive like I am, because I think it's just quite a, an entertaining, fast-paced thriller. Excellent. Sorry, James, am I boring you then? You, you want sorry, it? <laughs> no, it's late for me. It's late, that's all. Yeah. yeah, sorry, that's bad. <laughs> at least I didn't walk off at the end of your review, <laughs> eh, Steve? Well... He's gone again. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, six bullets. Though it, I mean, honestly, it's it's really good for um for what it is. Just a very cheap thriller. It's worth worth um ninety minutes of your time. Um, okay. So what I've been watching this week, uh, I'm watching a lot of Modern Family for the first time. Very good American sitcom. Um, which have I you never seen, seen it before? No, I've just finished watching the first season. Not seen it before, been recommended mm. it by a lot of people. Um, yeah, it, it, I like it. It is really good, especially for because it's obviously like a prime time comedy, isn't it? It's like a obviously a fat, it's not like an adult comedy, it's not shown late mm. night. Um, no, you know, there's no, no... I, I remember when it was broadcast like on TV at first before it got cancelled, yeah. uh, it was on Sky One. It was just um, bizarre to see something like that on at that time because it was straight mm. after The Simpsons, I think. 
Yeah. I just completely... <laughs> Some of it is really pushing the boundaries of what's acceptable. Yeah, for that kind of time. It's yeah. weird, isn't it? It's uh, Yeah, I think they treated it a bit like Malcolm in the Middle or something like that. Yeah, and it's, and it's not... Obviously anything. not at all like that, yeah. It's not overly rude or... Oh no! I just don't think it's six six thirty. No, I mean the stuff. first the first episode I ever saw um, was when uh, Peter gets the kid Stewie to. Mm. No, I'm talking about modern family, not family guy. Not not family guy. Oh, 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 oh. oh sorry, I missed. <laughs> I was just thinking. You've, you've had a nightmare. I've had a yeah. Oh dear. Brain part. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Steve, yeah. Owen, what do you think of Modern Family? Modern Fam- I like Modern Family. Yeah. <laughs> I have seen Modern Family. It's very good. Yeah. Better than Family Guy. <laughs> well, there's much to compare, isn't there, Stuart? Yeah. I, don't, I don't know where I am now. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, Modern Family. There's, um, there's some excellent characters in there. Um, for me, Manny, Phil and uh, Cam are by far the best. Um, also watched a film, British Irish film called Grabbers, which starred Russell Tovey among some other people, and it was it's about some alien organisms that crash in Ireland and try to kill everyone, but they are allergic or res- resistant to alcohol or something, so everyone has to get drunk, and it's all very predictable because you've got the police people on this remote island. One's a one's a tryhard, you know jobs worth and one's a, a kind of maverick who well not really a maverick but just doesn't really do what he's meant to do as a policeman and does what he wants and everything's all very predictable and it's all a bit boring um so don't watch that and the main film i watched i want to talk about is a george lucas film that isn't star wars it is red tails from last year which is apparently the first non-indiana jones or star wars film he has uh, that Lucasfilm has produced since 1994. Okay. Radio Land so, was apparently was the last one, which I so uh, never heard of it. No, and uh, it is a film about. I'll probably be pronouncing this wrong. The Tuskegee Airmen, which was a, um, Afri- a, a division or group of African American fighter pilots in World War Two. Um, on the poster. It, it makes out that it's starring Cuba Gooding Jr. and Terence Howard. They are both in it. Not not really much. They're kind of background characters. Cuba Gooding Jr. is terrible. He seems to ham it up completely, do a bad impression of some kind of army person in whatever position that he's playing, and pulls two faces. One is a grin out the side of his mouth, and one is a concerned look, and that's all he does. Terence Howard is okay when he's on screen. Um but yeah, so basically it is kind of, it's based on, or loosely based, or it's inspired by an actual group of fighter pilots. And obviously being African-American in the time of World War Two, they are not seen as equal. They are only sent on um, air-to-ground attack missions, but they want to be flying equal, you know, flying um, dogfights, you know, air-to-air combat. So they finally get the mission and you know, the white pilots and the bombers they're escorting think, oh no, it's a group of black pilots, that's not very good and all this, but eventually they see how good they are. It's all very predictable. Um, the dialogue is terrible. Uh, the the storyline is predictable, but, you know, not, not abysmal. Um, the acting is 
is as good as the dialogue, which isn't very good. Um, but but when you've got Neo, who's a rapper in the film, as one of your main characters, then what do you expect? Um, the only the only really good bits are the, the bits in the air, the bits that show the dogfights and the and the aerial battles and the. Uh, it's obviously all CGI uh, or mostly CGI, but it seems to be one thing that George Lucas does well. I mean, in this as well as what he did in Star Wars, he studied World War Two aerial footage for Star Wars for um. You know, for the for the battle between X-wings, Tie fighters, everything like that, to try and get you know a really good idea of how this kind of thing unfolded. Um, and he did the same for this film, obviously being a World War Two film. And those bits are good; those bits are quite exciting. They look really good, but the actual film, you know, the main crux of the film, the characters, the dialogue, and the acting is is just abysmal so the meat of the film basically yeah <laughs> pretty much everything that you know yeah i mean it looks good it's, it's set in italy in world war Two, and it's obviously some beautiful scenery and then like all the dog fights and everything looks good and but yeah in, in general it's, it's one one that needs to be avoided yeah not a good week for you then steve makes you happy that star wars has been taken off george lucas <laughs> yeah yeah, it, yeah. That, that just underlines that i think so, yeah. so you should have watched the final member, Steve. You you might have seen a decent film then. Well, we'll, we'll have to. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. Uh, so James, what have you watched this week? Okay, apart from uh, re-watching Robocop and Starship Troopers in preparation for our Paul Verhoeven Corridor Praise special coming up soon. Professional plugging there, lads. Um, what I've also done is I've watched... Um, the best film of the year so far, according to Sight and Sound, and also my current updated list. So just uh, it's gone in at number one. I'll talk about that shortly. Uh, I have also watched the worst film I've seen all year. Uh, it was available on EE for 99p last week, so I rented it, and I said, who wants me to review this on the podcast? And all of two people said yes <laughs> no one said no so that's two nil so uh very very quickly uh my review of uh, danny dyer's run for your wife uh you can already sense where this is potentially going just from the title um it's directed and written by a guy called ray cooney and it's based on his play uh that finished its initial west end run in 1983 so this the source material is over 30 years old that's not necessarily a bad thing uh, you know, The Hobbit is, I don't know, what, 80 years old, something like that. and that's Noah, which is being made, Russell Crowe's in it. I mean, how old is that? Exactly. So it's not necessarily the age of the source material. It's how badly the source material has dated. And this is, oh, my God, this is horrendously dated material. Um, just to let you, Danny Dyer plays John Smith. Fucking great imagination there. Uh, who is a cabbie. And he's also married to two women, uh, played by Denise Van Outen and Sarah Harding of Girls Aloud fame. So two people who aren't really actors. Uh, Is that Academy Award nominated? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, At the beginning of it, the the film starts off with this weird kind of cheerful cabbie montage where he picks up people that uh, Ray Cooney has worked with throughout his theatrical career. And this film is sprinkled with cameos from people that I'm meant to recognise and don't. 
and I know I'm meant to recognise them because they wander up the screen and give off some catchphrase that I've no idea what it means. It's but means nothing. It. Pardon? It's Keith Chegwin in it. No, no, this is uh, this is proper theatre, people. Oh, you know, uh, no cheggers. Uh, no cheggers. No. So you've got like Maureen Lipman, um, who I did recognise, um, and uh, June Whitfield, who I actually recognised. That's good. They, they're, they're, that's the calibre of people that I recognise. Then I had a look at the cast list afterwards, and it's like the guy who played, um, who did all the confessions of a window cleaner type <laughs> films. Robin Asquith, <laughs> I think his name is. Um, yeah, that. Uh, there's also uh, a couple of muggers, not muggers. Um, there is a mugger, mugging that happens. A couple of buskers near the beginning, played by Cliff Richard and Rolf Harris. And I kind of went, oh, oh, hang on, mm. oops. Um, yeah, so that's not that. Uh, hey, I'll say no more uh, for fear of contempt laws. Um, but yes, basically, he is a cabbie, and he interrupts this comedy. Um, sixth form style mugging that's got a terrible acting uh, which and um, the person who's being mugged this old bag lady is played by Dame fucking Judy Dench and I have no idea what pos- I think she knows Ray Cooney I have no idea what possessed her to be in this I think someone knows something yeah I know it, and, and I thought right she's been in she's put in an amazing performance in one of my favourite films of the year and now she's done this. God damn it. It's like when Jonah Hill did Moneyball and then The Sitter, but kind of more extreme. Um, so, yeah, not not good at all. Um, and Anyway, during the mugging, uh, Danny Dyer, John Smith, gets uh, knocked out and he gets taken to hospital. And he, in his confused state, gives some information, which means his web of lies, his bigamy, his two marriages are, are going to come crashing down and his two wives are going to find out about it unless his best friend can help him kind of sort the mess out. And his best friend is played by Neil Morrissey. Uh, brilliant. And um, he, then there's does, just 90... Does he ever look at Martin Clune in Doc Martin, which has gone quite well, and think, fucking hell, it's not really gone well for me after them behaving badly. He had, uh, no. He had Bob the Builder, but now he's just doing home base adverts, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a sad state of affairs for Neil Morrissey. What I will say, though, is he's one of the better things in this. Which is yeah, believe it or not, the best thing in this film is Christopher Biggins. That's the <laughs> level that we're talking at here. Um, Christopher Biggins and Lionel Blair play uh, a gay couple. Uh, just oh god! It seems um, like yeah. it's the one show made a movie. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that is a lovely, lovely description. Uh, there's also bits. It's also kind of like you remember the episode of The Simpsons where Homer discovers editing. He discovers star wipes and stuff like that. <laughs> Hmm. This has got loads of slide wipes. Um, just everything. Nothing cuts properly. It's just a slide wipe in every single time. And and comedy sound effects. And like the if there's a bit if there's like a note on the table you meant to see, the camera kind of nods at it excitedly and goes whoa, 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 like that. Yeah, it's, it's oh my god. Um, it is like a, a 70s sitcom. Loads of it. Um, it's bookended. By two two terrible MOR songs called "Run for Your Wife," which are two completely different songs with the same nonsensical title. Um, there's even some brilliant casual homophobia in there, just in case you were worried about which decade you were watching this in. Uh, the, one of the examples I wrote down, he's describing the crime, and then I was hit by a handbag, and the policeman goes, "Hmm, was it a gay mugger?" And it's just like, "Wow, that's that's clunky. Is it, is it, that's offensive." Is it kind of like the jokes, but like the bad? Like a bad version of jokes that you'd 
hear now if you watch like an old uh, old episode yeah. of Porridge Road yeah. and Horses and thought like like it's really funny and you think oh hang on that joke if they made it now that wouldn't get past the sense. Oh no, I, but it, I can't imagine it ever being funny. This is the pro. Yeah, you're right. It is that kind of thing. But they're they're. You look at it. You just look at the basic structure of the joke and go, "That doesn't work." Actually, um, yeah. So many of these bits, you loads of the plot moments are telegraphed from a mile off. Um, all I'd say, it's got two point four on IMDb, which I think is the lowest rated film I may have even seen on IMDb. Um, it's my worst film of the year. Interestingly, it took a grand total of seven hundred and twelve pound in its opening weekend when it opened in the UK, which is. Which is incredible, really. It's £712. Um, it's shockingly bad. Do not make the mistake. I, I, I just did it for... The, do you know what I did it is... The reason I did it is because I thought it would be interesting for the podcast. But also, I was looking at my letterbox accounts thinking, right, I've seen too many fours. I've seen too many four-star films this year. Maybe, maybe I'm too generous. Maybe I need to watch something terrible to remind myself that, no, those four stars probably were deserved because I'm comparing it to this terrible, terrible film. So, um, yes, Run For Your Wife, did, worst film that I've seen. Where did you watch it? I, I rented it from EE, um, so I watched it on my tablet. Which, yeah, maybe that. Maybe if I'd seen it on the big screen, <laughs> it would have made a huge difference. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think I've spent far too long talking about Run For Your Wife. I do, very, do, I do just do want you, to talk about... Do you think, and I'm going I'm to yeah. lay down the gauntlet here, Okay. You do lay down gauntlets. I can't remember. I think you do. Yeah. Um, but anyway, do you think we could write a funnier film? I, do you know what? I, I honestly think we could. It may have slightly less broad appeal. It may make even less. Um, I, I could. I, I'm certain. No, it I could. Well, pay one thousand pound for a ticket. There we go. Oh, that's sorted then. No, I, I, I honestly think. Anyone with anyone who has seen a comedy program from the last ten years, from the last twenty years, if they just went right, I want to do something like that, they would make something better than this. This would be bad in the eighties. This would be bad back when the play was written. I have no idea how it even ended up on the West End. Obviously, people just used to go and see shit for the sake of it. Because it's horrible, and and the worst thing about it, and I'm I, I'm not spoiling anything here, because do you know what, none of you are going to watch this. I, I know that for a fact. He learns at the end of this, at the end of this terrible day, where he's trying to kind of stop his two marriages. But he doesn't even learn anything. He ends up still married to two women and continuing his life of lies. How is how how does that happen? There is there's not even a journey for the character. At no point does he go, oh, maybe I love this one more than the other, or maybe, oh, maybe I've been terribly, maybe I'm terribly wrong and all that. It's like, no, do you know what? He gets away with it. What? Dick. I nearly said something worse. That's that um, uh, mentored by Harold Pinter. Yes. Danny Dyer, who was good in Human Traffic, and then... <laughs> <laughs> fucking terrible. <laughs> anyway, I do want to talk about The Act of Killing, which is... My favourite film of the year. It's Sight and Sound's favourite film of the year, and it's so you know you're talking about two huge authorities on film there. So you, you better prick up your ears, people. Um, Pretty huge authorities on film now. What's that? 
talking about three huge authorities on film now. Once you've had your, you'll go on it. And that's what I was saying. I was one of them. Sight and sound aren't two people, Steve. It's not like Marks and Spencer. <laughs> I could have listened to Sight and Mr. Sound. <laughs> I thought you listened to someone else. <laughs> no. <laughs> Do you know what? We are more shambolic than ever tonight. It's I, don't know, I don't know what Owen's laughing at after Family Guy. I know. <laughs> Look, I'm just staying quiet for the rest of the yeah. Now. Okay. So anyway, the act of killing Indonesian film. It's uh, a documentary that was originally kind of it was showing at festivals last year, but it got its cinematic release uh, this year. It's directed by Joshua Oppenheimer, um, and it's it's executive produced by Werner Herzog as well. Um, which Werner Herzog said it is one of the uh, most terrifying and surreal films that he's ever seen. Um, and when he says that. You kind of you think right okay I better listen to this. Um, story of it is uh, it's set in um, Indonesia um, and it's about there was a there was a movement in 1965 basically it's genocide uh, up to a million people were killed if they were uh, they were accused of being communists and ethnic Chinese and it was in uh, North Sumatra um, and the star of this film in inverted commas is this man called Anwar Congo who is a gangster. And in the 60s, he um, was selling black market movie tickets um, and he ended up leading up uh, one of the most notorious death squads in the area. And Anwar himself uh, killed about a thousand people. And he demonstrates how he killed them uh, by strangling them with wire. And he demonstrates that on one of his friends. What I will say about this film, it is a really, really shockingly difficult film to watch at times. And I said, I mentioned, I watched it last night, I mentioned on Twitter, I I thought it would be impossible to find a more important and powerful documentary than Blackfish, which I've been banging on about for a few months. Um, this has topped it for me. Uh, this is, well, the, the general conceit of the, the film is that Joshua Oppenheimer, who has been living living in Indonesia for a number of years, he's a Danish guy, but he's uh, he he speaks Indonesian, well the the dialect that they're speaking in North Sumatra anyway, and um, he has spoken to Anwar Congo and various other members of the death squads from the 60s, and he's what he's done is he's given them the equipment and the know-how and and the encouragement to recreate their their past atrocities on film in whichever hollywood genre they choose to and they kind of they're making this big film with a weird mix of genres so you see gangster done in a gangster style done in a western style there's there's a musical uh, element to it there's a horror element to it and the reason he's done that is because of the fact that they have come up with so many stories about why what they did was justified. He wants to explore that. And it's um, it's this really, really troubling film at times because you see men who killed people talking about their job as if it's nothing. Um, talking about how uh, Anwar Congo himself says he, he doesn't deal with the deaths that he caused because he drinks and he dances and he smokes marijuana and he takes ecstasy and he's he's a happy man um he's in his he's in his 60s now and he's kind of graying and uh then they start filming these scenes of of what they did 
and they start off like picking up small little bits of it and he looks back at the rushes and goes no no I wouldn't have worn white trousers and like he's picking up on these tiny little details and that that's actually some of the most disturbing things is how they're picking up about how this isn't quite right for their film um but what this what this allows what the fact that they're making this film actually allows them to discover things that they wouldn't to think about things to look inside when they wouldn't normally have done so and there's a scene quite early on which is one of the most powerful scenes i've seen in cinema all year where they're talking about um an interrogation scene and someone who is his neighbor uh, suddenly says oh I've got a story from that time for you, you might want to use it for the film um, there's this guy and he starts laughing and says, it was me and he starts describing how his stepfather was taken from their house and shot in the street um, and how they had to bury him like a goat because they were scared of being taken as well and in, he's never broached this subject before and he's doing it in this really deferential way and he keeps saying so you know obviously no offence and like, he's talking about this horrific thing that happened to him and it's clearly the first time he's spoken about it in front of his neighbour, this feared gangster, ever since it happened. Um, and then they start still coming up with ways that, oh, yeah, but we don't want to look bloodthirsty and things like that. It's really shocking at times. And then it just spins you round, and there's some really, really funny elements of it. Some of the hamming up for characters, because the guys who portrayed the guys who carried out these acts are acting in the film and they can't act and you actually sat there there's some real spinal tap moments where they're bitching about each other's um inability to act which just brings you out of the moment for a second it's very very troubling but absolutely compelling watching and then there's a few side plots one of them is running for congress and he wants to be a politician because that's a license to print money. He's just so open about it, going, well, um, I want to get onto the housing board. Because if I can get on there, then if people's houses are too small, I can threaten them with demolition. And then they'll pay me. And he starts talking about, oh, there's te- I can get 10000 per building. Uh, and so just this block, that's £100,000 already. And he's just, talk- yeah, just talking about how corruption is part of their lives. Um, and then there's another scene which just I just took me back completely it's like the one show, it's like the indonesian version of the one show with some like woman all teeth and tits basically uh like really ah, da, da. and she starts she's talking to them about this film and how brilliant it is they're making this film and then she keeps going about and of course you killed you killed millions of the chinese and haha if they ever come back again you'll kill them all again and stuff like and it's just it's terrifying when you suddenly think hang on this is still happening and this whole society has built up these myths of um, the, their rights to take these things and kill these people. And they, they have justified it to themselves. And that's what this film really, really gets into the heart of, is how they've justified their actions to themselves and how they're living with it. But the last half hour of the film just becomes quite nightmarish as this film within a film starts taking over and we're seeing more of that, and then Anwar Congo um, has to, yeah, and a few of them start having to play the victim in these films, and they start actually. And I, I won't, I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but it isn't, it isn't two hours of mass murderers recreating their crimes. It, it's far more sensitive than that. It's far more important than that. And what you actually see is. Um, 
there is some real journeys of people here and, and some people go on no journey whatsoever it's just it is it, anyone who thought that blackfish was a difficult watch this is far more difficult um but at the same time it is literally the most incredible film i've seen this year i cannot stop thinking about it in a good and a horrible way um uh, and it, you, you just learn about you know i don't i'm gonna sound like part man's inhumanity to man kind of thing you know it's very partridge-esque but you really do and um what um a name was aunt i can't remember her first name uh talked about the banality of evil uh, and that's exactly what this is it is how people did the most un- the most normal ordinary people did the most unspeakable things and how they justify it to themselves it's an absolutely terrifying film uh but just incredible i don't expect that many people to watch it unfortunately but if you if you have any interest in documentary and like i said it's it feels like it has the hand of Werner Herzog there. Um, Werner Herzog saw the early um, early rushes of it, or an early cut of it, signed on as executive producer, and it de- it definitely has that idea of um, Werner Herzog's documentaries, where he looks into some of the deepest, darkest areas of human existence, uh, and this definitely stares into that. It's absolutely shocking, absolutely incredible. Okay, uh, sounds interesting, definitely. Mm. Um, it's it's not one that I'd ever force anyone to watch, put it that way. But if you if you can, and I'd just let you, I'd watched it. It was available to rent on iTunes for three forty nine. So that that's where I watched it. It's also out on DVD as well. Okay, um, have a quick break, and we'll be back with our new release reviews, which features uh, the remake of Carrie and Blue is the warmest color. So start off our new release reviews. Uh, Owen will be taking a look at the new version of Carrie. But before we go into that, here is a clip. He's not coming. It's a trick. You see, Mama? You see, it's all going to be okay. Oh, repent. It's not too late. Mama, don't ruin this for me. I'll be home early. I'm gonna have to tell that boy the truth. That your father took me and you were born You'll say in nothing sin. Wrong. And from that sin. From that sin, I was born another. The worst sin. A man or a woman who is a witch among you is to be put to death. You are to stone them. So that was a clip of Carrie. So Owen, why don't you tell us all about this one then? Yeah, okay. It's um, a remake, obviously, um, or another adaptation of the original novel by Stephen King. Um, it's directed by Kimberly Pierce, who uh, is another person this week I've watched the film I've not seen anything else by. I think she's probably most famous for Boys Don't Cry. I don't know if that's fair to say, but mm-hmm. um, okay. yeah, you know, like I say. She's not someone I've seen any work of before. Uh, Carrie is essentially the story of um, a girl in high school who is bullied quite viciously by some of her um, fellow students, fellow pupils. And she has a very religious, paranoid 
verging on psychopathic mother who keeps locking Carrie in a cupboard to pray for her sins. Um, it's a very famous film from the 70s by uh, Brian De Palma, which, to be honest, you might as well just watch that original instead of the remake. They are virtually identical scene for scene. Um, that's not to say that the remake isn't a good film. Um, it's just the fact that it's a carbon copy of the original, which makes it a bit pointless. Um, yeah. At least when you get remakes like uh, trying to think, Evil Dead that I saw mm. earlier this year. Okay, it's recognisable as following lots of similar themes about what was brought up in the original Evil Dead. But it was still, it had a unique twist and it was a bit different. Um, and even going further back, things like Hills of Eyes, at least they try yeah. something different and a bit more unique. Yeah. Um, whereas this just... It, 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 I mean, it, it, a lot of the things are the same. So it gets things the same like um, in the original as well as the remake. I think you have the, the theme of, well, who actually is the good guy in this story? Who is the good... Who, who's good and who's bad? Is there a good person? Is there a bad person? And it's that stuff that it gets right. But is that because it is just copying what the original did? So mm. it's hard to judge it on its own merits. Well, I find it, it's quite hard to judge it on its merits. But I did kind of like it. I mean, the best thing about Carrie is the ending, which is notorious. And it's all over mm. film posters. And it's, you know, one of those things that's been spoofed endless times. Um, I'm not going to say exactly what it is, just in case there are a few people yeah. who haven't seen it. But it's fair to say, as you might notice from the poster and the themes that develop throughout the film, it involves a lot of blood. Um, and it is done really well. As with the original, again, um, which I always thought the best thing about that was the uh, the ending. In this, it is, is a, again, it's just... The whole reason you're watching this film is to get to that end scene or that last sort of 10, 15 minutes to yeah. see how well they do it. And they, they do do it very, very well, in fairness. You know, they get it exactly uh, right. Um, thinking about the the cast involved, Julianne Moore, who we've talked about a little bit earlier on, she uh, plays the mother, Carrie's mother in this, and she's pretty good. Yeah, she's. I mean, I quite like. I said earlier, I quite like her anyway. I mean, in the things I've seen, Big, mm. Big Lebowski, she's brilliant in, and Boogie Nights as well. She's good. Mm. She, yeah, she's she's quite good in this. It's another case though that you've got a horror film, and the characters aren't always the most in depth things about mm. them. And she she is she plays it very camp. Um, yeah, a lot of the mannerisms are a little bit over the top, but I think that's what's required from the role. She's this controlling, um, she self-harms, and she's just completely oppressive to her daughter, and she gets all that across really well, but you do get a little bit overboard with some of the crazy, I'm afraid. Um, but the star is obviously Chloe Grace Moretz, who is just fantastic. She's Turned out to be one of my favourite young actresses at the minute. Um, Kick-Ass 2 earlier in the year. Again, I thought she was really good in that. I didn't think mm-hmm. much of the film, but I thought she was you know, the best thing in that. And again, she's, she's, she's really good in this too. Um, 
she she's playing the leading role. I can't think of many other films that I've seen where she's had the leading role. I know that she was in Let Me In, which is the remake of uh, Let the Right One In, which I haven't seen. But in the in Let the Right One In, the, the girl and the boy are the main characters in it. Yeah. So I don't know whether it's exactly the same in Let Me it's, In. It, um, I, I've not seen it, but I've heard that it's another one of those almost exact. Yeah, you know, very good, but yeah. it's pointless in that it's almost exactly the same. Right. Okay. Well. Yeah. Okay. So then she probably has had leading yeah. roles before then. Yeah. Um, but this is, you know, she's um, getting a bit older now. She, I think, she's sixteen. So she's really getting into these leading roles, and she's really quite a capable actress. She she does carry the film the whole way through. Um. I'm, yeah. I'm I'm quite interested to see more of her films now. I've I've quite liked her in stuff that I have seen. I'm going to see Hugo on Friday, hopefully. Um. The Scorsese film. So. I think she's in that, so hopefully she'll she'll be good in that as well. Um, she is actually, yeah. I, I like Hugo. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, I like it. It's it's a little bit sentimental, um, but yeah. it's a, it's a nice film about like the birth of cinema. So no, sure. I enjoyed it, and she's yeah. good. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm quite looking forward to that if, if I've got time to actually go and see it on Friday. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, overall, it is a very well made film. It looks great. They've updated a lot of the story, obviously. So there's things like um, when she's being picked on when she first in the, uh, near the very beginning of the film. Uh, there's a shower scene, um, which in the original actually I was surprised. It, the, there were a lot of um, what does she call them in this? Uh, dirty pillows <laughs> on mm. show. <laughs> the dirty pillows on show. In the yes. remake, the, the, they aren't. I'm afraid there's no dirty pillows for many girls. Oh. Is that because it's was it a 15 rather than an 18? 15, yeah. Yeah, um, the original was an 8. Brian De Palma was a bit weird as well. He was, was a bit odd. Yeah. Um, but the, in that scene, in that show scene, um, is when Carrie first has her a very first period, and mm. it's you know quite a big deal for her and all the other kids. She doesn't really understand what's going on, and it's the first time you really understand the relationship between her and her mom as she is mm. as now as an, an old teenager. Um, and all the other kids in, in the, the show scene, they all start picking on her. And In this, they video it on the phone, and that plays quite a big part in the story, mm. which I thought, you know, right. at least... That's, that's updating it, it's yeah. Updating. It's, it's re- recognising that the way that it played out in the previous film wasn't really going to work. Yeah. So they, they've tried to change it. But it's, you know, it's not a significant change. It's just that... Mm. You know, it gives it a, a more modern take, um, I suppose. But it, yeah, overall, like I say, it's well made, it's well told. It looks great. Some of the CGI in it is pretty good, actually. Um, this sometimes it can look a bit corny when you've got objects floating about, but it, you know it looks quite natural in this. But it's just that nagging feeling that it's ultimately a rather pointless remake. Next up then, James is reviewing Blue is the Warmest Colour, uh, a title that makes Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen furious, I've heard. <laughs> oh, wow, that's, that's, a, that's a 90s reference yeah. you got there, Steve. That's topical, that is. <laughs> I don't watch yes. OI programmes, I don't know what's going on with these films anymore. No, no, no. Uh, but anyway, yes, blue is the warmest colour. We have no clip, so James is going to go straight into telling us all about that one. It's French, yeah, so, by the way, so I'm never going to watch it. Yeah, well, hours long, so. Well, 
there might be some in there for you. That's all I'll say. <laughs> um, blue is the warmest okay. colour then. Yeah. That, trust me. It won the uh, Palm Door earlier this week and was the first ever Palm Door that was jointly awarded to the director, uh, uh, Abdetalif Keshish, um, and also the two main actresses uh, played by Leah Sidhu and Adele Exochopoulos. I think that's right. Um, so that was quite interesting. And, and rightfully so, um, having seen it, it lives and dies by its two leads um, who apparently read the script once and then had to, that, that was the only time they read the script was they read it once and then the rest of it was them improvising and seeing what felt natural and things like that. Very, very briefly, Blue is the Warmest Colour is a coming-of-age story of a young, called, called, young girl called Adele who um, we start off seeing her in her last year at high school um, where she discovers boys for the first time and kind of doesn't really make the connection with boys. And so she meets Emma, who is uh, a young woman slightly older than her with blue hair, the the blue of the, the title, who um, and together they then spend, we, we spend a few years in their company as they first discover their love for each other. Um, and Adele begins to become uh, a woman. And as it says, in one of the most kind of French, worldly cinema, pretentious uh, IMDb summaries I've ever seen, because usually they're really quite basic. And there it says, Adele grows, seeks herself, loses herself, finds herself. Um, it it kind of is that kind of. I'll be honest. It's it's a three hour film. It is the full one hundred and seventy nine minutes. Um, it's NC. It's rated as an eighteen, and there is a very good reason for that. But I will just say, it it's an incredible film. It's genuinely, genuinely incredible. And I will try and talk about the film in isolation from the controversy around the film which i will kind of reference shortly as a film it is brilliant and i am a big fan of moody french dramas about love sex and identity last year my favorite film uh, of the year was rust and bone this follows in a in a similar kind of vein it's got a similar realist tone to it um while at the same time still still feeling kind of dreamlike at times uh, simply because of uh, the way it's beautifully shot very different though in terms uh, this film doesn't have any score in it at all which which is an interesting choice it, it works really well for this it's got some contemporary music playing in certain scenes and weirdly uh, uses one of the songs that i loved most from uh Rust and Bone. So that was that kind of jolted me slightly, which is the magician remix of Licky Lee's I Follow Rivers. But enough of the soundtrack. The film itself is brilliant. Uh, it feels it hasn't got a a huge plot. It's not very groundbreaking in terms of its plot. It's in fact the film it reminds me most of uh, from this year, um, apart from Rust and Bone last year, is Blue Valentine, um, in that it is just a realistic portrayal of a relationship uh, birth of a relationship death of a relationship the kind of fallout from that as well um and at no point did i spend time looking at my watch or anything like that but it, it 
goes along. Not it's still quite a sedate pace, but it, it just kind of draws you in with some brilliant, brilliant character work from from the two main actresses who really, really do inhabit their characters. Very, very brave performances, very honest performances as well. And I've got this far in the review without talking about the sex, and I'm very proud of myself for that, but it is something I need to confront here. And I'm not the type of person who is prudish about sex. I'm not the type of... I went as a single... Not a single bloke, a bloke on my own there, um, and I went and bought a ticket and went to sit and watch this film in a room full of old people, which was slightly weird, because... This film has some of the most explicit sex scenes I have seen in a mainstream uh, cinematic release. I think um, Michael Winterbottom's Nine Songs, which was the film that famously featured real sex, it is the only film I've seen which has been more explicit in terms of its sex scenes than this. There is, I'd say, an early scene. It's, it's about no, 45 minutes, an hour into the film. Um, and it is right at the the start of Emma and Adele's kind of blossoming relationship and it is literally I'm not kidding you it is a 10 minute hardcore lesbian sex scene CC I told you there's something for you there yeah, um, I can get that in the private yeah. my bedroom for free so. <laughs> yeah I know but it's the art of it anyway anyway what um interesting and it, it is very interesting in a week which has seen um and yeah this is terrible because i can't remember the name of the blooming actress now who's uh uh who's complained in america um and i can't remember the name of the film fucking shambolic sorry i, I just you two have thrown me off there anyway there's a film called uh charlie something um I, oh, do you know this is Charlie Danger, something like that. I don't know. Anyway, Charlie film Danger. in America. No, it's not that. No, it's, not that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's about to be released, and um, it's been cut because um, they had to remove part of a sex scene, and it was because the main actor in it was giving the woman um, Evan Rachel Thomas. Oh, oh fuck me, I'm terrible tonight. Sorry. Um, this is. I, I should have done my research properly. But anyway, a film in America. Really, really vague here. Um, the main actress has complained because a sex scene with her and her male co-star had to be cut. And the bit that they cut from it was um, her receiving oral sex from the bloke. And the uh, American cinema rating organization said, no, no, that can't get through. You're not having that scene in there for this rating. Him having sex with her, that was fine. People blowing each other's heads off. That was apparently fine, but her receiving oral sex was not allowed. And she was saying that America has a real problem with um, female sexuality on screen. So what I will say is it was actually quite refreshing to see a film where women were allowed to enjoy sex and have kind of natural sex. And there was no that there was no misogynistic side to it. There was no kind of male perspective there. It was also very much... Can I just step in there, yeah. though? Yeah. Have you seen Black Swan? I have seen Black Swan, yeah. So, I mean, because that features, you know... I, I, yeah, no, no, you're exactly right. And I don't know what was different about that scene. than, um, And maybe it was because they weren't completely naked as well or something. I'm not entirely mm. sure. Yeah. Uh, no, no, you're right. I think Black Swan is still quite a stylized scene, and I think Black Swan's is more what you 
yeah, because it's you, not a sexy see, sex scene, is it? It's a weird no, sex scene, creepy and weird, and I think yeah. that's also part of it. Um, it's kind of nightmarish, yeah. and also I think you actually see less than you think you do mm. in Black Swan. I think it's very well edited mm. and shot, and I think you see less than you think you do in this film. You you, you see everything literally, um, and but it, it's just what I found is it's actually rather honest. It, it it's just it just decides to show two women having sex uh, and that yeah you know, and it's it's quite honest there's not clever cuts here and there and it's interesting that the choice certainly in the the earlier sex scenes is just to kind of show them in full frame um which you would never see in a hollywood film you know it's it's close-ups on this part of the body and this part of the body and actually no it pulls back full frame um naked women have enjoying each other what's very interesting is the, the biggest sex scene is the one right at the beginning of the relationship. And I, I think the me trying to do a little bit of analysis here, which is rare for this podcast from me, um, was the director uses these sex scenes uh, as, as the honesty barometer of the relationship. And the longer and more open the sex scene, the healthier the relationship at that point. Now, you know, that make of the director's mind what you will, if that's what he's saying, that, you know, a great... Uh, a great relationship has to have great sex but that's that to me is the message i'm getting from that because as the relationship starts to peter out you see them kind of having more furtive fumbles uh still clothed and things like that and that's uh he, clearly he identifies sex as being part of the good part of their relationship um what i will say is the the controversy side of this is that since the palm door was given to the film both actresses have come out and said that they had a very, very difficult time working on the film. Neither of them want to work with the director again. Uh, and it does make you think, oh, OK, maybe it wasn't as kind of uh, as safe a working environment as, as it appears to be on screen. Um, but I think sometimes you have to... And I'm not... I'm, I don't know the uh, details here. I'm not belittling their experiences or anything like that. But having recently seen some Werner Herzog films, for example, sometimes great art comes from great sacrifice. And Werner Herzog half nearly killed his his uh, crew, his actors in some of making his films. Um, Klaus Kinski nearly killed, killed Werner Herzog during the filming of a lot of those films. Doesn't stop the films themselves being utterly brilliant. And for me... That that's what I got from this film. I only found out about the controversy after I watched the film and I did a bit of research. I went into it just thinking, uh, I know this one, the Palm Door, and I know some of the uh, the reasons that it's an 18. But I I really really enjoyed it. It was a heartbreaking, heartbreaking um, expose of a relationship breaking down. Um, and also I would I'd say don't expect a huge amount of closure and it's very interesting it's it's french title is um the uh la vie d'adele parts one and two the the life of adele parts one and two and it is it is quite simply this is a few chapters of a, a young woman's life um and it comes to uh, it's just so incredible simply down to the performances uh, and, and the shooting and it is a film that I would say if you are at all in love with French cinema if you enjoy if you enjoy seeing great performances on screen basically then then watch this 
like Steve said earlier, I, this isn't one to maybe watch with your family though. Um, don't don't stick it on with Granny at Christmas and things like that. It's it's gonna shock. Okay, uh, so that was Blue is the Warmest Colour. Um, one last new-ish review for us. Uh, Owen saw Parkland. So just a quick quick look at that one, Owen. Yeah, very quickly, because um, like you said, it's been a while. I think it came out on Monday last week, which is the anniversary of when JFK was shot. I think that's correct. Well, I saw it on yeah. Thursday, so a bit later in the week. Um, yeah, well, as I've just said, it's... Um, about JFK's Parkland is the name of the hospital where he was taken to after he was uh, assassinated or after he was directly after he was shot. Um, yeah, I mean, I enjoyed the story in so much as it was quite interesting to see how things unraveled in the aftermath of the assassination um, from a very straight faced, true to life story. Apparently they made they went to great efforts to make sure people didn't think it was another conspiracy story or you know a fictionalized version of events. It's supposed to be um, based on fact. I think the director uh, Peter Landsman is a journalist by trade, and so he wrote the story to be as straight down the line exactly what happened. This is just the the, the sequence of the events. And to be fair, I, I mean it does convey quite well how distressing it was for the people involved but it does come across like a journalist story so you get lots of facts followed by evidence of fact and then that just seemed to be how the plot was put together so you'd have one person who says something here's the evidence to demonstrate why that thing is that thing and it's just um a little bit tiresome i suppose but it, it helps to keep everything cohesive and once you get your idea you know your head around okay so this is how the, the story works then you just have to embrace it, really, and go with it. And, um, yeah, like I say, I quite enjoyed it overall. The actors in it, um, I think Zac Efron's the biggest name who's attracting attention. Uh, I didn't think he was particularly amazing. Some people seem to have said he was quite average, which I think is a bit harsh. Uh, Tom Welling is the very definition of average in this. He essentially played an angrier version of uh, his Clark Kentrell from Smallville. Um, yeah, I wasn't particularly impressed with him. Uh, who else was in it? Kat Stevens um, played the grieving Jackie Kennedy, and she didn't really have a huge lot to do other than cry a little bit. Um, but there's one. Understandably. Quite understandably, yeah. <laughs> but there is one scene of her standing over the body in the Parkland hospital, which is, I mean, it's just a brutal scene. Um, it's one of these where I said it, it, it sort of conveys how distressing it was because during this, there's an interaction between um, between her and a nurse just moments before she just has this breakdown, and it's it's really quite a powerful scene and um, yeah, very very disturbing as well. Uh, the two standout performances: James Badgedale as Rob Oswald, who is the brother of Lee Harvey Oswald, who's not really a character or a person, I should say, rather than a character who I've ever thought about at all before mm. um you know he's got his own tragic story because obviously what lee harvey oswald has done has affected lee's family as well as you know rob's own family and their mother who is um very protective of her son and is convinced that lee harvey oswald was a secret agent for the government and he was ordered to do what he, he actually did 
when it's just, you know, Rob is the level-headed, down-to-earth, realises the impact of what's just happened. Um, but yeah, Paul Giamatti's performance is the standout. Uh, he plays Abra- Abraham Zafruda, who's the guy who caught on camera, you know, that video of the assassination. Mm-hmm. It's a devastating performance from him. He's just a, he's a great actor anyway. Not really surprised that he was as good as he was, um, but perhaps good enough to get him a nod for supporting as- uh, supporting actor at the Oscars. I don't know. Perhaps he was he was very good. Worst thing about Parkland was the camera work. Really, just it was driving me mad. Um, it's just that they can't keep the camera steady. It's just constantly zipping all over the place. It zooms in, zooms out. There's blurred things, and then they come into focus, and then the blurred again. I really felt sick watching it. Um, yeah, I mean, it was just really frustrating and, and almost ruined the film at times. Uh, but, you know, overall, it's a good, interesting film. And, I mean, I didn't know a lot about the JFK assassination before I went in to see it, but now I feel like I know a bit more, which I think was the point of the film. So, yeah, it was it was quite good. If it's still showing near you and you're in, into these sort of very factual films, then it's probably one of the better types of that film I've seen. Just take some seasickness pills before you go in to see it. Okay, uh, so that rounds up all our um, new release reviews for this week. Uh, there's many to pick from from next week, so no doubt we'll have something for you there. We'll have another quick break, and then we'll be back with um, some recommendations for the week ahead. So recommendations then for the week ahead. Uh, let's start with mine on television Friday night. Um, rather fittingly, at twenty past eleven on Dave is the Fast and the Furious. Um, obviously, with Paul Walker's passing, what's the film that kind of made him the most? Well, made him famous. Uh, it's an enjoyable film as well. James certainly likes the whole, whole franchise, so. Yeah, I've I've not seen the second one. I've still not watched the second one, but yeah. No, is, it, is that the one he... Because he did one of them without that's Vin That's the one Diesel, he did without Vin Diesel, yeah. yeah. The second one was him, uh, and I've heard it's it's not a great film, you know, just in general. So uh, I will watch it at some point. Uh, I, I'm tempted to get the box set now. But uh, yeah, no, the it, it, it's big, dumb, fun action. Um, and yeah, out of that kind of genre... I like it. I, yeah, what, I can't help it. What I, was, what I was really going to recommend is just that one. I noticed it was on and it tied in with what's happened this week. But what I was going to recommend is ITV two eight o'clock on Friday is Ocean's Eleven. Uh, it is a fun film. The second and third ones just get a bit silly and a bit boring. When you got Julia Roberts playing a character who looks like Julia Roberts, who then plays Julia Roberts to get them into somewhere mm. where need to be for part of the that's just dumb but the first film is good fun um with you know the actors seem like they're having fun making the film which translates to the film and you know the good plot a few twists in it and it's, it's enjoyable without being too much to concentrate on and don cheadle's cockney accent as well yeah, don't yeah. forget don cheadle's cockney don, accent don cheadle cockney don cheadle yeah great actor 
fucking terrible accent. Oh, I yeah. loved it. <laughs> <laughs> there must be, yeah, you know, Danny Dyer can play a cockney. Just about. Imagine. Not in Run For Your Wife, he can't. Imagine yeah. that. Take Don Cheadle out of Ocean's Eleven and put in Danny Dyer as the cockney. How <sighs> different film. Yeah, it's a, it's a mind, mind <laughs> Anyway, James, what are you what are you telling people to watch? Okay, yeah, on Monday released uh, on DVD and Blu-ray is my favourite horror film of the year, which doesn't say too much because I've not seen that many horror films and um, I've I don't really like modern horror films, which is why I think I like The Conjuring so much because it felt like a 1970s horror film, which for me is the heyday of the genre uh the conjuring stars uh, patrick wilson and vera farmiga as two kind of inspired by real life uh paranormal investigators and they go and investigate one of their famous cases of, of the warrens uh a family house terrorized by some terrifying presence i really enjoyed the conjuring um, I know Owen liked it as well, and I, I felt that its period detail was spot on. It actually felt like a a horror film from the 70s, and it had some good, sympathetic performances from everyone involved. Far too often in recent horror films, I've just hated the central characters, which gave me nothing to, to root for, but I, I was rooting for the characters in this interesting film. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Owen, I, I, I remember you enjoyed it as well. Yeah, I thought it was really good. I think it's probably my favourite horror of the year as well. There we go. Really directed by James. Yeah. yeah, directed by James Wan, who's uh, who started off with the uh, Final Destination films, but I know was also involved in Insidious, mm-hmm. and interestingly, is the director of Fast and the Furious Seven as well. So I've seen the cast for that this week. I didn't realise mm-hmm. they had the people involved that they've got. Yeah, because it's. It's not just like it's, it's, it's almost it's like an Expendables like, film. Isn't it, it is becoming a new Expendables, yeah, because they've got um, Tony Jaa and obviously the Stace who's yeah. crossing over. <laughs> and did I see Kurt um, Russell was in it as well? Yeah, Kurt Russell as well. It, it is. It's becoming like the Expendable with car, Expendables with cars, which mm. I'll be honest, no bad thing. It has me more intrigued now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, Owen, what are you? What's your recommendation? Um, well, I am also recommending a film that's on Friday evening. Um, that'll make three films there. Eh? Uh, but Taken, as I was talking about Six Bullets earlier in the podcast, Taken, the uh, Luc Besson film uh, directed by Pierre Morel, starring Liam Neeson as an all-action hero, would you believe? Um, is on. Yeah, it's on more four at 9pm. Um, I would suggest watching Taken and then watching Six Bullets afterwards if you've got time two very good sort of CIA mercenary agents who travel to Europe and stop some criminals who are trying to traffic children that's essentially the plot for both yeah yeah <laughs> okay well that's um that's all for this week's podcast then uh, so thanks to everyone who's listened also thanks to everyone who contributed anyway and we'll be back next week with another podcast for you The failed critics are James Diamond, Steve Norman and Owen Hughes with original music provided by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com You can find us at failedcritics.com at Facebook at facebook.com slash failedcritics and on Twitter at at failedcritics
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Professional explorer <laughs> is a legend anyway. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking, because I didn't get a chance, I was planning to rewatch it this week and I didn't really get a chance because I've actually been watching loads of films, which is, uh, has been a rarity for me in recent <laughs> weeks. But um, uh, yeah, no, I'd... I've thought about it today, and I thought actually it's a bit like um, one of those stories they used to show on Eurotrash, yeah. right in between the bits with um, uh, Jean-Paul Gaultier and the other fella, and uh, Jones. yeah, uh, chatting away, and then they go and do like a kind of ten-minute feature, and this this is one of those ten-minute features stretched out to seventy-five minutes. At least it's only seventy-five mm-hmm. minutes, but I, honestly, I, I just really enjoy. It. I just I love the um, the vibe of it. it had a very had a very offbeat kind of Louis Theroux esque as well vibe about weird people doing yeah. weird things and and I, I did love the fact that the, you know the, the guy who at the beginning seems like a mad eccentric because he's running a penis museum actually is the kind of grounded center of the film and he just starts getting so annoyed and stressed out with all these weirdos mm. and they're extreme and um, I, I like that kind of dichotomy I thought it lost its way a little bit towards the end but I, I really enjoyed it and I'm I'm glad you didn't find it horrific. I <laughs> no, I could keep watching it. Although there were some images which were just... Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Did not need to see that. Yeah, so um, anyone who's listening who can think of a suitable forfeit for Steve for having not watched it and as, uh, you know, to be a, a warning to those who lose out in the quiz in future as well, uh, that this will be taken seriously, please... Drop us a line at the usual places and let us know. He should what we at, can do. at least start on minus one points in this quiz, I think. <laughs> just to give me a boost. <laughs> Poor Steve. No, I think that'd be that's quite harsh. James would just pick some French actor that I've never heard of. <laughs> yeah, he's already at a disadvantage already, isn't he? But okay. So anyway, Is that was the final bit. Uh yeah. <laughs> Uh, final movie, which is on Netflix UK for anyone who is interested in it. But honestly, it's a it's a diverting way to spend seventy five minutes. Um, one to, one to watch with your significant other. Uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> Actually, to be fair, there's nothing there that will put most people to shame. Put it that yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so don't worry about there's, that. There's a couple of moments which it might be embarrassing if you're watching with family. I guess. Yeah. Why but would nothing? Why? Why on earth would you put that on with your family? Um, why would Why would that ever happen? It's a fair point. True. It's a fair point, I suppose. Yeah. It's not going to Maybe. appear on the most watched on Facebook list anyway on Netflix. Yeah, I don't if, think. if you're watching that of your family and you've decided to put it on with your family, I'm, I'm wagering that nothing's going to embarrass you. Yeah, no, so that's a fair point. I have interest, Owen. Did you turn off your sharing for it, or will your friend will it pop up on your feed that your friends uh, will have seen that you've watched the final member? I don't have anything pop up on the Facebook. Uh, today, uh, you're all secret. You're I all secret. I'm, I'm quite social <laughs> about like every other thing that I watch, but for some reason, it's because the Netflix account is in my wife's 
name. Uh, so because I uh, used my free trial, you see, and then uh, when we okay. wanted to watch Arrested Development, I used oh, her free trial. Because it's in her name and it got shared to everyone. Everyone's gonna think your wife's watched it. <laughs> You've missed yeah. the trick. I know. Yeah. Anyway, quiz. Yeah. Um, okay. So yeah, as, as here we go. I've, I've not done. Not done the quiz before, so it's quite exciting. Okay, I'm gonna start off here. Last time uh, in... involved in a quiz, it didn't go very well, did it? Oh yeah, <laughs> fucking Carl Vaggio. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay, here we go. In 1992, the hand that rocks the cradle. No. Okay. Uh, Sorry, I'm just thinking. 1993, Body of Evidence. Never heard of it. 1993 as well, The Fugitive. Owen, is it Harrison yeah. Ford? It is not Harrison Ooh, Ford. It's a pretty obvious guess. Yeah, <laughs> that would have been quite a jump. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. The, the guy who played the janitor in Scrubs, whose name I can't remember. No, it is not him. No. Bit of a, bit of um, a wild guess. <laughs> in 1997, Jurassic Park, The Lost World. Oh, trying to think. See, it, yeah, it's not Pete Postlethwaite, is it? It is not Pete Postlethwaite. Owen. In 1990- is it, Oh yeah. Is it Jeff Goldblum? No, it's not Jeff Goldblum. In 1997, Steve. Boogie Nights. Steve. Yes. Vince Vaughn. No. Wrong gender. <laughs> Wrong gender. Okay. Okay. So yeah, 1997, Boogie Nights. Who was female in that? In 1998, The Big Lebowski. I know who it is. I just don't know her name. <laughs> I can't think of any women that I'd recognise her name of in Draft Part 2. In 2001... Is it, uh, Owen, is it Julianne Moore? It is Julianne yes, Moore, yeah. I've just seen her in Carrie. Oh, yes. yes. Say. No, she, she was in Draft Part 2. Yeah. yeah. She was also in The Fugitive in this tiny little part. She's one of the... Um, uh, doctors that he goes to at the hospital who helps him in about two scenes. That's the quiz then. Owen is one nil up. Uh, on to the news now. And we had some sad news in the world of film this week with Paul Walker passing away in tragic circumstances. Paul Walker, the star of the Fast and Furious films, among others. Yeah, um, that was a really weird one, actually. It was a kind of... I woke up on Sunday morning and went on Twitter and uh, lots of messages of condolence to Paul Walker and it just felt really surreal because uh, he was 40. Um, and then, yeah, it's just a really, really uh, sad thing. And it's one of those where up until now, I, 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 I like the Fast and the Furious. I've, I've, in the last year, I've really got into the Fast and the Furious films. And I'll be honest, I've not seen him in anything outside of the Fast and the Furious films. And I may have even criticised him at time in the Fast and the Furious films. Um, but he was a big part of those films. And do you know what? It's really sad that it's taken something like this for me to actually then read a bit about him um, and actually see that he was doing some interesting things. And also just the fact that he was on his way from one charity... Uh, function to another um, and everything that seems to be coming out about him was that he was actually a really really nice down to earth bloke 
with a 15-year-old daughter, and that's the biggest tragedy of the whole thing, is that, you know, that it, it's, a young, it's a young father who's left a family behind in in just not very nice circumstances at all. I, I've not seen any of the pictures. I've no wish to see any of the pictures, and I think it is a bit... Uh, it's pretty disgusting, actually, that they were shared around so quickly on social media, but I suppose that's the world that we live in these days. But, no, a, a, a real kind of... A real tragedy in terms of a personal tragedy more than anything else yeah it is very sad like i said um it was just it spread around twitter so quickly those images i didn't see them either but it's just it reminded me a little bit of when we were talking about grizzly man quite recently mm. the Vern Herzog film, and he said yeah he, he in that documentary he didn't want to show any of the footage or play any of the audio to sort of it would just be disrespectful there was, mm. there was something about the culture of people who were very quickly downloading that image and sharing it, which was a bit sad, yeah. I think. Yeah, and then the snarky remarks and everything like yeah. that. And it's just, you know I, know, I know it sounds really old-fashioned, but honestly, if you've got nothing nice to say, shut up. Mm. Uh, yeah, that... Um, interestingly... Uh, Fast and Furious 7 is still going to... There will be a delay, apparently, and no one seems to know how long it will be, but it is still going ahead, and, you know, that just goes to prove that in Hollywood the show must go on. Uh, you know, money talks and everything like that, and I'm assuming uh, it will pretty much go ahead as a tribute to to Paul Walker. Uh, I've gone Ali with it. Uh, it was just about to go back... It, they've, been doing, they've been in pre-production, and it was about to go back into... Uh, production on Monday, I think it was. So, you know, really, really kind of terrible timing in that sense. Um, yeah, he just finished his last film, Brick Mansions, which is out later on. Oh, no, beginning of next year. That's in post production at the moment. But yeah, 40 year old, um, father of one. Real shame. Uh, away from that, there's always also mm. been um, some top 10 of the year film list released uh, James will talk us through that yeah um, uh, I, I will just say the Empire have bought out their top 50 which seems like a big number to have um, In a, it seems a bit pointlessly big number to have in terms of the best of the year uh, it just makes me think that advertising spending may have had something to do with that I don't know uh, who am I to besmirch uh, Empire but they've also got Stoker in their top 10 which is an absolute travesty <laughs> but anyway um, it, I think the one that a lot of people do pay attention to um, is the BFI the Sight and Sound top 10 of the year and the top 10 of the year really really interesting this year I think actually uh, a few British films on there mm. um, first uh, number one the Act of Killing, which I will be talking about later on in this podcast, so I'm not going to say any more about that. Number two, Gravity, which I thought very interesting. Um, a a big-budget film that's ended up on the, the BFI sight and sound list, which never seems to happen. I can only assume it's because it's Alfonso Cuaron, <laughs> and, uh, and it's done something different. Uh, number three, Blue is the Warmest Colour, which I will also be talking about. See, I'm talking about some damn good films this week. Um, and then The Great Beauty, which I missed at four. Francis Ha, which I also watched this week, and I'm, I'm, I won't bother talking about it and what, we, what we've been watching. It was just like an episode of Girls that had no jokes and was directed by um, some kind of 
art student. Oh, it's so I did not like Francis Hart at all. Apologies out there to anyone who did like it. You always I've get heard a, a film like that popping up in these sight and sound yeah. don't you? Yeah, and a lot of people seem to really enjoy it, but I just it bored me and I hated all the characters. It was just so bloody twee <laughs> and oh no, no, not for me at all. I heard some um comparisons to early Woody Allen and no, no. <laughs> Not at all. Uh, a Touch of Sin, a Chinese film that I've not seen, even, haven't even heard about. Mm. Upstream Colour, the new film from Shane Carruth, who did Primer, which has not shown anywhere near me so far. Um, so I've not had a chance to see that. I will try and see that. Selfish Giant, uh, directed by Cleo Barnard. That's apparently very, very good, and I'm looking forward to seeing that when I can get my hands on it. And then finally, uh, Nought, The End of History which is a, a Philippines film. So there's a, a film from the Philippines and a film from Indonesia. Uh, in the well, uh, The Act of Killing is made in Indonesia, starring Indonesian people, but it's actually a kind of seven-way split in terms of its production countries. But um, yeah, in, interesting top ten, and I'm looking forward to seeing a few more on there anyway. Yeah, yeah I I, I, I've probably only seen Gravity on that list. I, I had the opportunity to see The Selfish Giant, um, and it was on, I think they had it on Blinkbox. And I could have rented it, and I used it instead to rent Hummingbird, the Jason Statham film. <laughs> so it just shows what kind of person I am, I suppose. But um, I've heard lots of good things about it. Mm. But I am surprised to see it on this list. I thought it was one of those that kind of flew under the radar a little bit. Mm. Yeah, no, it's, it's it's good to see it there, definitely. Um, oh, oh, and just to let everyone know, in the next week or so, uh, we'll be launching our end-of-year poll. Uh, so everyone who's listened to our podcast or read our website is v- free to vote in our end of year poll uh, and that will be collated and compiled by me in my little stats dungeon um, ready for the end of year show come around New Year's time. Yeah, it's not a list that I've seen many from. I've only seen Gravity. Um, try and see one or two more before the year's out. But I can just see it being typically pretentious list of films that, that <laughs> the list just annoys me because it's got a, a film rather than having nine and ten it's got joint ninth and instantly that just annoys me <laughs> <laughs> it's because they do it's because they haven't got like thousands of voters so it, it genuinely tied that's that's how it happened they've not done it to annoy you steve i promise i, I think they have okay <laughs> Anyway, uh, we'll have a break there, and we're back with what we've been watching soon. So what we've been watching this week... uh, Owen, why don't you start us off as you're going back to uh, an old favourite of yours. Uh, Yeah, I am a little bit. Um, Well, first, first before I do say that, I'm just going to sort of give Jerry a pat on the back and say thanks very much because he recommended Broadchurch on one of our TV episodes a while ago. I've had Steve talking about Breaking Bad, which I've gone back and watched and really enjoyed. Jerry's recommended Broadchurch. James recommended uh, Blackfish. So, yeah, let's all gather around and have a bit of a circle jerk oh. for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, great recommendation so far. But the film I'm actually going to talk about... Um, yeah, it's quite right. I did go back to one of my old favourites. I watched a Jean-Claude Van Damme film called Six Bullets, which um, 
from the DVD cover might put a lot of people off. It's a very badly photoshopped image, but it's probably the best Van Damme film that I've seen for years, actually, that he's made in years rather, not that I've seen in years, but one that he's made for years. Um, directed by a guy called Ernie Barbarash, which doesn't really mean anything to me. He did, I think he did the third film in the Cube series. Um, did another film with Van Damme in 2011, which also features Scott Adkins, um, which I've not actually watched. He's done some other stuff with Cuba Gooding Jr. But pretty much basically what I'm trying to say is he's a director I've got literally no experience of. So I wasn't quite sure what to expect from this. Um, the story itself, it starts off with uh, John claude looking an awful lot like Walter White from Breaking Bad. He's seemingly arranging a rather uh, unpleasant uh, rendezvous, if you like, in a seedy, grotty little club, which is actually set inside this big, massive, posh house. But uh, anyway, he sort of, eventually he peels off his moustache and his beard and, aha, he's actually a mercenary who's there to save a young boy who's been used in some weird child sex ring. And then lots of explosions and gunfire later, it turns out the house actually had some young girls stuffed into the walls who were burned to death as a result of Van Damme's rather gung-ho style of action hero. So, um, at which point the tone of the film shifts a little bit, because it sets itself up to be quite a bog-standard action-y thriller film, which you sort of roll your eyes at and think, that's another straight-to-video Van Damme actioner. Um, but it, yeah, it shifts to something a lot darker and, and kind of twisted. Although it's essentially a taken knockoff. I mean, it's a family who fly out to Moldova. Their young daughter's kidnapped. Um, they drag this reluctant Jean-Claude Van Damme out of his retirement, uh, where he now works as a butcher to, to help find their kid, etc., etc. I mean, it does sound a bit cheap uh, and a bit of a rip-off. And in fairness, it does look rather cheap at times. You can tell they had very restrictive budget. Uh, and whilst the script with the, in regards to the dialogue isn't anything extraordinary either, I really, really enjoyed it. It was another one of those films where um, I was just looking to see what was on Love Film uh, instant late one evening. It seemed like worth giving a go because it's got Van Damme in it. It's probably going to be OK, isn't it? Maybe if not, it's, it doesn't really matter to me. Um, but I stayed up well past my bedtime watching it all. Um, it, it's just just really entertaining. It doesn't exactly have one main villain for the story either, which I think helps. It's kind of like a succession of bigger and badder characters and worse and worse situations. Although there are like gangsters in it that you kind of follow as the villains or the sort of gang itself as, as being the, the criminals of the film. But it's got a really good sort of flow and pace. It just uh, stuff's constantly happening, keeping things moving. It doesn't drag its heels at all, but it doesn't feel very um, lazy either. So it's yeah, it's, it's quite entertaining the whole way through. Uh, actually, the, the, the guy who plays the dad in it is a guy called Joe Flanagan, who is apparently really quite famous for his role in Stargate Atlantis, but it's something I've not really seen. He was all right, actually. Oh, um, he plays like an MMA fighter in it, and he plays it quite believably. He looks the part, and he's you know, some, he, he has a lot of action scenes himself, and he, he seems to do quite well in them. So I think... Um, you know, credit to, to the di- director there for, for making those look quite good. Um, yeah, Van Damme actually, again, got to put in one of his better quality acting performances as opposed to just turning up and being Van Damme like he's done in a lot of his films of late. Like, um, did I talk about the Universal Soldier Day of Reckoning film on here? 
Yeah, yeah. He did, yeah. So he, you know, he was all right in that, but his very minor role. Again, in UFO Alien Invasion, which was an absolutely terrible film, he just had a very minor part. Uh, Brilliant title as well. Yeah, great title. A little B-movie B British film, which is sort of a comedy, which isn't very funny. Um, <laughs> and uh, Dragon Eyes as well, he was in that recently, which it, it, his name is basically on the title, so people go to actually see it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, overall, it, like I say, it was very entertaining. Uh, not really anywhere close to being as good as Taken, which is a film we've talked about a lot. And I've said mm. before, I really like Taken. Uh, but it's in that sort of vein, in that mould, really. If you like Taken, you would probably like Six Bullets. It's worth watching, though, even if you aren't a mild Van Damme obsessive like I am, because I think it's just quite a, an entertaining, fast-paced thriller. Excellent. Sorry, James, am I boring you then? Sorry, no, it's late for me. It's late, that's all. Yeah. yeah, sorry, that's bad. At least I didn't walk off at the end of your review, <laughs> eh, Steve? Well... He's gone again. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, six bullets, though. It, I mean, honestly, it's really good for um for what it is. Just a very cheap thriller. It's worth, worth um 90 minutes of your time. Um, Okay, so what I've been watching this week... Uh, I'm watching a lot of Modern Family for the first time. Very good American sitcom. Um, which Have I you never seen, seen it before? No, I've just finished watching the first season. Not seen it before, been recommended mm. it by a lot of people. Um, yeah, it, it, I like it. It is really good, especially for because it's obviously like a prime time comedy, isn't it? It's like a obviously a fact. It's not like an adult comedy. It's not shown late mm. night. Um, no. You know, no, no... I, I remember when it was broadcast like on TV at first, before it got cancelled, yeah. uh, it was on Sky One. It was just um, bizarre to see something like that on at that time, because it was straight mm. after The Simpsons, I think. Yeah. And just completely... <laughs> Some of it is really pushing the boundaries of what's acceptable. Yeah, for that kind of time. It's yeah. weird, isn't it? It's uh, Yeah, I think they treated it a bit like Malcolm in the Middle or something like that. Yeah, and it's, and it's not Obviously anything. not at all like that, yeah. It's not overly rude or... Oh, no, I just don't think it's 6, 630 no, worth. I mean, the first, the first episode I ever saw um, was when uh, Peter gets the kid, Stewie, to... Mm. No, I'm talking about modern family, not, not Family Guy. Not, not Family Guy. Oh, oh, oh. oh sorry. I, missed, <laughs> I was just thinking... You've had a nightmare. I've had a yeah, oh dear. brain part. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, Steve. Uh, Darwin, what do you think of Modern Family? Modern family. I like Modern Family. <laughs> yeah, I have seen Modern Family. It's very good. Yeah. Better than Family Guy. There's much to compare, isn't that, Stuart? Yeah. I don't, I don't know where I am now. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, Modern Family. There's um, there's some excellent characters in there. Um, for me, Manny, Phil, and uh, Cam are by far the best. Um, also watched a film, British Irish film called Grabbers, which starred Russell Tovey among some other people, and it was it's about some alien organisms that crash in Ireland and try to kill everyone, but they are allergic or res- resistant to alcohol or something, so everyone has to get drunk, and it's all very predictable because you've got the police people on this remote island. One's a one's a try-hard, you know, jobs worth, and one's a, a kind of maverick who, well, not really a maverick, but just doesn't really do what he's meant to do as a policeman, and 
does what he wants and everything's all very predictable and it's all a bit boring. Um, so don't watch that. And the main film I watched I want to talk about is a George Lucas film that isn't Star Wars. It is Red Tails from last year, which is apparently the first non-Indiana Jones or Star Wars film he has, uh, that Lucasfilm has produced since 1994. Okay. Radioland, so, apparently, was the last one. which I So, uh, never heard of it. No. And uh, it is a film about, I'll probably be pronouncing this wrong, the Tuskegee Airmen, which was a, um, Afri- a, a division or group of African-American fighter pilots in World War II. Um, on the poster, it, it makes out that it's starring Cuba Gooding Jr. and Terrence Howard. Howard. They are both in it. Not, not really much. They're kind of background characters. Cuba Gooding Jr. is terrible. He seems to ham it up completely, do a bad impression of some kind of army person in whatever position that he's playing, and pulls two faces. One is a grin out the side of his mouth, and one is a concerned look, and that's all he does. Terence Howard is okay when he's on screen. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, so basically, it is kind of... It's based on, or loosely based, or it's inspired by an actual group of fighter pilots. And obviously, being African-American in the time of World War Two. They are not seen as equal. They are only sent on um, air-to-ground attack missions, but they want to be flying equal, you know, flying um, dogfights, you know, air-to-air combat. So they finally get the mission, and, you know, the white pilots in the bombers, they're escorting, think, oh, no, it's a group of black pilots, that's not very good, and all this, but eventually they see how good they are. It's all very predictable. Um, the dialogue is terrible. Uh, the the storyline is predictable, but you know not not abysmal. Um, the acting is is as good as the dialogue, which isn't very good. Um, but but when you've got Neo, who's a rapper in the film, as one of your main characters, then what do you expect? Um, the only the only really good bits are the, the bits in the air, the bits that show the dogfights and the and the aerial battles and the. Uh, it's obviously all CGI, uh, or mostly CGI, but it seems to be one thing that George Lucas does well. I mean, in this, as well as what he did in Star Wars, he studied World War II aerial footage for Star Wars, for um, you know, for the for the battle between X-wings, Tie Fighters, everything like that, to try and get you know a really good idea of how this kind of thing unfolded. Um, and he did the same for this film, obviously being a World War II film. And those bits are good. Those bits are quite exciting. They look really good. But the actual film, you know, the main crux of the film, the characters, the dialogue and the acting is, is just abysmal. So the meat of the film, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much everything that you notice. Yeah. I mean, it looks good. It's, it's set in Italy in World War Two, and it's obviously some beautiful scenery and then, like, all the dogfights and everything looks good. And But, yeah, in, in general, it's, it's one one that needs to be avoided. Dear, not a good week for you then, Steve. Makes you happy that Star Wars has been taken off George Lucas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, that that just underlines that, I think. So yeah, so you should have watched the final member, Steve. You you might have seen a decent film then. Well, we'll, we'll have to. Um, <laughs> I don't know, maybe. Uh, so James, what have you watched this week? Okay, apart from uh, rewatching RoboCop and Starship Troopers in preparation for our Paul Verhoeven Corridor Praise special coming up soon. 
professional plugging there, lads. Um, what I've also done is I've watched um, the best film of the year so far, according to Sight and Sound, and also my current updated list. So just uh, it's gone in at number one. I'll talk about that shortly. Uh, I have also watched the worst film I've seen all year. Uh, it was available on EE for 99p last week, so I rented it. And I said, who wants me to review this on the podcast? And all of two people said yes. <laughs> no one said no. So that's 2-0. So uh, very, very quickly, uh, my review of uh, Danny Dyer's Run For Your Wife. Uh, you can already sense where this is potentially going, just from the title. Um, it's directed and written by a guy called Ray Cooney. And it's based on his play uh, that finished its initial West End run in 1983. So this, the source material is over 30 years old. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, you know, The Hobbit is, I don't know, what, 80 years old, something like that. And that's Lower, which is being made, Russell Crowe's in it. I mean, how old's that? Exactly. So it's not necessarily the age of the source material. It's how badly the source material has dated. And this is, oh my God, this is horrendously dated material. Um, just to let you, Danny Dyer plays John Smith fucking great imagination there uh who is a cabbie and he's also married to two women uh played by denise van outen and sarah harding of girls allowed fame so it's two people who aren't really actors uh is that academy yeah. award nominated uh <laughs> <laughs> um uh, at the beginning of it, uh, the, the film starts off with this weird kind of cheerful cabbie montage where he picks up people that uh, Ray Cooney has worked with throughout his theatrical career. And this film is sprinkled with cameos from people that I'm meant to recognise and don't. And I know I'm meant to recognise them because they wander up to screen and give off some catchphrase that I've no idea what it means. It's but means nothing. Pardon? It's Keith Chegman in there. No, no, this is uh, this is proper theatre people. You oh, know, uh, no cheggers. Uh, no cheggers, no. So you've got like Maureen Lipman, um, who I did recognise, um, and uh, Jim Whitfield, who I actually recognised. That's good. They, they're, they're, that's the calibre of people that I recognise. Then I had a look at the cast list afterwards, and it's like the guy who played, um, who did all the confessions of a window cleaner type <laughs> films. Robin Asquith, I mm. think his name mm. is. Um, yeah, that. Uh, there's also uh, a couple of muggers, not muggers, um, there is a mugger, mugging that happens. A couple of buskers near the beginning, played by Cliff Richard and Rolf Harris. And I kind of went, oh, oh hang on. Mm. Oops. Um, yeah, so that's not... Ne- uh, hey, I'll say no more uh, for fear of contempt laws. Um, but yeah, basically, he is a cabbie and he interrupts this comedy... Um, sixth form style mugging that's got a terrible acting uh, which and um, the person who's being mugged this old bag lady is played by Dame fucking Judy Dench and I have no idea what pos- I think she knows Ray Cooney I have no idea what possessed her to be in this I think someone knows something yeah I know it, and, and I thought right she's been in she's put in an amazing performance in one of my favourite films of the year and now she's done this. God damn it. It's like when Jonah Hill did Moneyball and then The Sitter, but kind of more extreme. Um, so, yeah, not not good at all. Um, and Anyway, during the mugging, uh, Danny Dyer, John Smith, gets uh, knocked out and he gets taken to hospital. And he, in his confused state, gives some information, which means his web of lies, his bigamy, his two marriages 
are are going to come crashing down and his two wives are going to find out about it unless his best friend can help him kind of sort the mess out. And his best friend is played by Neil Morrissey. Uh, brilliant. And um, it, then there's just 90... Does he ever look at Martin Clune in Doc Martin, which has gone quite well, and think, fucking hell, it's not really gone well for me after them behaving badly. Yeah, no. Bob the Builder, but now he's just doing home base adverts, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. It's it's a sad state of affairs for Neil Morris. What I will say though is he's one of the better things in this, which is yeah. Believe it or not, the best thing in this film is Christopher Biggins. That's the <laughs> level that we're talking yeah. at here. Um, Christopher Biggins and Lionel Blair play uh, a gay couple. Uh, just oh god. It seems um, like yeah. it's the one show made a movie. Yeah, that's a, that's a. That is a lovely, lovely description. Uh, there's also bits. It's also kind of like you remember the episode of The Simpsons where Homer discovers editing. He discovers star wipes <laughs> and stuff like that. <laughs> this has got loads of slide wipes. Um, just everything. Nothing cuts properly. It's just a slide wipe in every single time. And and comedy sound effects. And like the if there's a bit if there's like a note on the table you meant to see the camera kind of nods at it excitedly and goes like that. Yeah, it's, it's Oh, my God. Um, it is like a, a 70s sitcom, loads of it. Um, it's bookended by two two terrible M.O.R. songs called Run For Your Wife, which are two completely different songs with the same nonsensical title. Um, there's even some brilliant casual homophobia in there, just in case you were worried about which decade you were watching this in. Uh, the, one of the examples I wrote down, he's describing the crime, and then I was hit by a handbag, and the policeman goes, hmm, was it a gay mugger? And it's just like, wow, that's... That's clunky. Is it, is it, That's offensive. Is it kind of like the jokes, but like the bad, like a bad version of jokes that you'd hear now if you watched like an old, uh, old episode yeah. of Porridge Road yeah. and Horses and thought, like, like it's really funny. And you think, oh, hang on, that joke. If they made it now, that wouldn't get past the. Sense. Oh no! I, but it, I can't imagine it ever being funny. This is the pro. Yeah, you're right. It is that kind of thing. But they're they're. You look at it. You just look at the basic structure of the joke and go, "That doesn't work." Actually, um, yeah, so many of these bits. You loads of the plot moments are telegraphed from a mile off. Um, all I'd say, it's got 2.4 on IMDb, which I think is the lowest-rated film I may have even seen on IMDb. Um, it's my worst film of the year. Interestingly, it took a grand total of 712 pound in its opening weekend when it opened in the UK, which is. Which is incredible, really. It's £712. Um, it's shockingly bad. Do not make the mistake. I, I, I just did it for... The, do you know what I did it is... The reason I did it is because I thought it would be interesting for the podcast. But also, I was looking at my letterbox accounts thinking, right, I've seen too many fours. I've seen too many four-star films this year. Maybe, maybe I'm too generous. Maybe I need to watch something terrible to remind myself that, no, those four stars probably were deserved because I'm comparing it to this terrible, terrible film. So, um, yes, Run For Your Wife, did, worst film where, that I've seen. Where did you watch it? I, I rented it from EE, um, so I watched it on my tablet. Which, yeah, maybe that. Maybe if I'd seen it on the big screen, <laughs> it would have made a huge difference. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think I've spent far too long talking about Run For Your Wife. I do very, I do just do want you, to talk about... Do you think, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, yeah. to lay down the gauntlet here, Okay. You do lay down gauntlets. I can't remember. I think you do. Yeah. Um, but anyway, do you think we could write a funnier film? And 
do you know what? I, I honestly think we could. It may have slightly less broad appeal. It may make even less. Um, I, I could. I, I'm certain. No, it I could. Well, pay one thousand pound for a ticket. There we go. Oh, that's sorted then. No, I, I, I honestly think anyone with anyone who has seen a comedy program from the last ten years, from the last twenty years. If they just went, right, I want to do something like that, they would make something better than this. This would be bad in the 80s. This this would be bad back when the play was written. I have no idea how it even ended up on the West End. Obviously, people just used to go and see shit for the sake of it because it's horrible. And and the worst thing about it, and I'm I'm not spoiling anything here because, you know what, none of you are going to watch this. I, I know that for a fact. He learns at the end of this, at the end of this terrible day, where he's trying to kind of stop his two marriages. But he doesn't even learn anything. He ends up still married to two women and continuing his life of lies. How, is, how, how does that happen? There is, there's not even a journey for the character. At no point does he go, oh, maybe I love this one more than the other, or maybe, oh, maybe I've been terribly, maybe I'm terribly wrong and all that. It's like, no, do you know what? He gets away with it. What? Dick. I nearly said something worse. That, um, uh, mentored by Harold Pinter. Yes. Danny Dyer, who was good in human traffic, and then... (laughs) Fucking terrible. Anyway, I do want to talk about The Act of Killing, which is my favourite film of the year. It's Sight and Sound's favourite film of the year, and it's... So, you know, you're talking about two huge authorities on film there, so you you better prick up your ears, people. Um, Three huge authorities on film now. What's that? Talking about three huge authorities on film now. Once you've had your, you'll go on it. And that's what I was saying. I was one of them. Sight and sound aren't two people, Steve. It's not like Marks and Spencer. <laughs> I thought you listened to someone. Sight and Mr. Sound. I thought you listened to someone else. <laughs> no. <laughs> Do you know what? We are more shambolic than ever tonight. It's. I don't know, I don't know what Owen's laughing at after Family Guy. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I'm just staying quiet for the rest of the yeah. point now. Okay. So anyway, The Act of Killing, Indonesian film. It's uh, a documentary that was originally kind of... It was showing at festivals last year, but it got its cinematic release uh, this year. It's directed by Joshua Oppenheimer. Um, and it's it's executive produced by Werner Herzog as well, um, which Werner Herzog said it is one of the uh, most terrifying and surreal films that he's ever seen. Um, and when he says that, you kind of you think right okay I better listen to this. Um, story of it is uh, it's set in um, Indonesia um, and it's about there was a there was a movement in 1965 basically it's genocide uh, up to a million people were killed if they were uh, they were accused of being communists and ethnic Chinese and it was in uh, North Sumatra um, and the star of this film in inverted commas is this man called Anwar Congo who is a gangster. And in the 60s, he um, was selling black market movie tickets um, and he ended up leading up uh, one of the most notorious death squads in the area. And Anwar himself uh, killed about a thousand people. And he demonstrates how he killed them uh, by strangling them with wire. And he demonstrates that on one of his friends. What I will say about this film, it is a really, really shockingly difficult film to watch at times. And I said, I mentioned, I watched it last night, I mentioned on Twitter, I 
I thought it would be impossible to find a more important and powerful documentary than Blackfish, which I've been banging on about for a few months. Um, this has topped it for me. Uh, this is... Well, the the general conceit of the the film is that Joshua Oppenheimer, who has been living living in Indonesia for a number of years, he's a Danish guy, but he's uh, he he speaks Indonesian, well the the dialect that they're speaking in North Sumatra anyway, and um, he has spoken to Anwar Congo and various other members of the death squads from the sixties, and he's what he's done is he's given them the equipment and the know-how and the, and the encouragement to recreate their their past atrocities on film in whichever hollywood genre they choose to and they kind of they're making this big film with a weird mix of genres so you see gangster done in a gangster style done in a western style there's there's a musical uh, element to it there's a horror element to it and the reason he's done that is because of the fact that they have come up with so many stories about why what they did was justified he wants to explore that and it's um it's this really really troubling film at times because you see men who killed people talking about their job as if it's nothing um talking about how uh anwar congo himself says he he doesn't deal with the deaths that he caused because he drinks and he dances and he smokes marijuana and he takes ecstasy and he's he's a happy man um he's in his he's in his 60s now and he's kind of graying and uh then they start filming these scenes of of what they did and they start off like picking up small little bits of it and he looks back at the rushes and goes no no i wouldn't have worn white trousers and like he's picking up on these tiny little details and that that's actually some of the most disturbing things is how they're picking up about how this isn't quite right for their film um but what this what this allows what the fact that they're making this film actually allows them to discover things that they wouldn't to think about things to look inside when they wouldn't normally have done so and there's a scene quite early on which is one of the most powerful scenes i've seen in cinema all year where they're talking about um an interrogation scene and someone who is his neighbor uh, suddenly says, oh, I've got a story from that time for you. You might want to use it for the film. Um, there's this guy, and he starts laughing. He says, hey, it was me. And he starts describing how his stepfather was taken from their house and shot in the street, um, and how they had to bury him like a goat because they were scared of being taken as well. And in, he's never broached this subject before. And he's doing it in this really deferential way, and he keeps saying, so, you know, obviously no offence. And like, he's talking about this horrific thing that happened to him. And it's clearly the first time he's spoken about it in front of his neighbour, this feared gangster, ever since it happened. Um, and then they start still coming up with ways that, oh, yeah, but we don't want to look bloodthirsty and things like that. It's really shocking at times. And then it just spins you around and there's some really, really funny elements of it. Some of the hamming up for characters, because the guys who portrayed the guys who carried out these acts are acting in the film and they can't act and you actually sat there there's some real spinal tap moments where they're bitching about each other's um inability to act which just brings you out of the moment for a second it's very very troubling but absolutely compelling watching and then there's a few side plots one of them is running for congress 
and he wants to be a politician because that's a license to print money. He's just so open about it, going, well, um, I want to get onto the housing board because if I can get on there, then if people's houses are too small, I can threaten them with demolition and then they'll pay me. And he starts talking about, oh, there's ten, I can get 10,000 per building. Uh, and so just this block, that's £100,000 already. And he's just, talk, you know, just talking about how corruption is part of their lives. Um, and then there's another scene which just I just took me back completely. It's like the one show, it's like the Indonesian version of the one show with some like woman all teeth and tits basically. Uh like really ah, da, da. and she starts she's talking to them about this film and how brilliant it is they're making this film. And then she keeps going about and of course you killed you killed millions of the Chinese and haha if they ever come back again you'll kill them all again and stuff like that. And it's just it's terrifying when you suddenly think, hang on, this is still happening. And this whole society has built up these myths of um, the, their rights to take these things and kill these people. And they, they have justified it to themselves. And that's what this film really, really gets into the heart of, is how they've justified their actions to themselves and how they're living with it. But the last half hour of the film just becomes quite nightmarish as this film within a film starts taking over and we're seeing more of that and then Anwar Congo um has to yeah and a few of them start having to play the victim in these films and they start actually and I, I won't I don't want to spoil it for anyone but it isn't it isn't two hours of mass murderers recreating their crimes it, it's far more sensitive than that it's far more important than that and what you actually see is um there is some real journeys of people here and, and some people go on no journey whatsoever it's just it is it, anyone who thought that blackfish was a difficult watch this is far more difficult um but at the same time it is literally the most incredible film i've seen this year i cannot stop thinking about it in a good and a horrible way um, uh, and it, you, you just learn about, you know, I don't, I'm going to sound like Partridge, man's inhumanity to man kind of thing. You know, it's very Partridge esque, but you really do. And um, what um, a name was Aunt, I can't remember her first name, uh, talked about the banality of evil, uh, and that's exactly what this is. It is how people did the most, un, the most normal, ordinary people did the most unspeakable things and how they justify it to themselves. It's an absolutely terrifying film, uh, but just incredible. I don't expect that many people to watch it, unfortunately, but if you if you have any interest in documentary, and like I said, it's, it feels like it has the hand of Werner Herzog there. Um, Werner Herzog saw the early, um, early rushes of it, or an early cut of it, signed on as executive producer, and it, de it definitely has that idea of um, Werner Herzog's documentaries where he looks into some of the deepest, darkest areas of human existence. Uh, and this definitely stares into that. It's absolutely shocking. Absolutely incredible. Okay. Uh, sounds interesting, definitely. Mm. Um, it's, it's not one that I'd ever force anyone to watch, put it that way, but if you if you can and i just let you i watched it it was available to rent on itunes for 349 so that that's where i watched it it's also out on dvd as well okay um have a quick break and we'll be back with our new release reviews which features 
the remake of Carrie, and blue is the warmest colour. So start off our new release reviews. Uh, Owen will be taking a look at the new version of Carrie. Before we go into that, here is a clip. He's not coming. It's a trick. You see, Mama? You see, it's all going to be okay. Oh, repent. It's not too late. Mama, don't ruin this for me. I'll be home early. I'm going to have to tell that boy the truth. That your father took me and you were born You'll say in nothing, sin. Mama. And from that sin... From that sin... Was born another... The worst sin... A man or a woman who is a witch among you is to be put to death. You are to stone them. I'm warning you, Mama. The devil's hand. Please don't do this. Okay, so that was a clip of Carrie. So, Owen, why don't you tell us all about this one, then? Yeah, okay. It's um, a remake, obviously, um, or another adaptation of the original novel by Stephen King. Um it's directed by Kimberly Pierce, who uh, is another person this week I've watched the film and I've not seen anything else by. I think she's probably most famous for Boys Don't Cry. I don't know if that's fair to say, but... Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Yeah, you know, like I say, she's not someone I've seen any work of before. Uh, Carrie is essentially the story of um, a girl in high school who is bullied quite viciously by some of her um, fellow students, fellow pupils, and she has a very religious, paranoid, virgin on psychopathic mother who keeps locking Carrie in a cupboard to pray for her sins. Um, It's a very famous film from the 70s by uh, Brian De Palma, which, to be honest... You might as well just watch that original instead of the remake. They are virtually identical scene for scene. Um, that's not to say that the remake isn't a good film. Um, it's just the fact that it's a carbon copy of the original, which makes it a bit pointless. Um, yeah. At least when you get remakes like uh, trying to think, Evil Dead that I saw mm. earlier this year, Okay, it's recognisable as following lots of similar themes about what was brought up in the original Evil Dead, but it was still it had a unique twist and it was a bit different. Um, and even going further back, things like Hills of Eyes, at least they try yeah. something different and a bit more unique. Yeah. Um, whereas this just, it, it, it's I mean it, a lot of the things are the same. So it gets things the same like um, in the original as well as the remake. I think you have the the theme of well who actually is the good guy in this story? Who is the good... Who is, who's good and who's bad? Is there a good person? Is there a bad person? And it's that stuff that it gets right. But is that because it is just copying what the original did? So mm. it's hard to judge it on its own merits. Well, I find it, it's quite hard to judge it on its merits. But I did kind of like it. I mean, the best thing about Carrie is the ending which is notorious and it's all over mm. film posters and it's, you know, on those things that's been spoofed endless times. Um, I'm not going to say exactly what it is, just in case there are a few people yeah. who haven't seen it. But it's fair to say, as you might notice from 
the poster and the themes that develop throughout the film, it involves a lot of blood. Um, and it is done really well. As with the original, again, um, which I always thought the best thing about that was the uh, the ending. In this, it is, is a, again, it's just the whole reason you're watching this film is to get to that end scene or that last sort of 10, 15 minutes to yeah. see how well they do it. And they, they do do it very, very well, in fairness, you know. They get it exactly uh, right. Um, thinking about the the cast involved, Julianne Moore, who we've talked about a little bit earlier on, she uh, plays the mother, Carrie's mother in this, and she's pretty good. Yeah, she's. I mean, I quite like, I said earlier, I quite like her anyway, in the things I've seen. Big, mm. Big Lebowski, she's brilliant in, and Boogie Nights as well, she's good. Mm. She, yeah, she's she's quite good in this. It's another case, though, that you've got a horror film and the characters aren't always the most in-depth things about mm-hmm. them. And she she is, she plays it very camp. Um, she, a lot of the mannerisms are a little bit over the top, but I think that's what's required from the role. She's this controlling, um, she self-harms, and she's just completely oppressive to her daughter and she gets all that across really well but you do get a little bit overboard with some of the crazy I'm afraid um, but the star is obviously Chloe Grace Moretz who is just fantastic she's turned out to be one of my favourite young actresses at the minute um, Kick-Ass 2 earlier in the year again I thought she was really good in that I didn't think mm-hmm. much of the film but I thought she was you know the best thing in that and again she's she's, she's really good in this too Um she she's playing the leading role. I can't think of many other films I've seen where she's had the leading role. I know that she was in Let Me In, which is the remake of uh, Let the Right One In, which I haven't seen. But in the in Let the Right One In, the, the girl and the boy are the main characters in it. Yeah. So I don't know whether it's exactly the same in Let Me it's, In. It's it. Um. I I've not seen it, but I've heard that it's another one of those. Almost exact, yeah, very good, but yeah. it's pointless in that it's almost exactly the same. Right. Okay. Well. Yeah. Oh, okay. So then she probably has had leading yeah. roles before then. Yeah. Um, but this is, you know, she's um, getting a bit older now. She, I think, she's sixteen. So she's really getting into these leading roles, and she's really quite a capable actress. She she does carry the film the whole way through. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm quite interested to see more of the films now. I've, I've quite liked her in stuff that I have seen. I'm going to see Hugo on Friday, hopefully, um, the Scorsese film. So I think she's in that, so hopefully she'll she'll be good in that as well. Um, she is, actually, yeah. I, I like Hugo. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, yeah. no, I like it. It's, it's a little bit sentimental, um, but yeah. it's, a, it's a nice film about like the birth of cinema, so no, sure. I enjoyed it, and she's yeah. good. Oh, great. OK. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm quite looking forward to that if, if I've got time to actually go and see it on Friday. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, overall, it is a very well-made film. It looks great. They've updated a lot of the story, obviously. So there's things like um, when she's being picked on, when she's near the very beginning of the film, uh, there's a shower scene. Um, which in the original, actually, I was surprised. It, the, there were a lot of... Um, what does she call them in this? Uh, dirty pillows. 
Poncho. Yeah. <laughs> the Dirty Pillows. In the yeah. remake, the, the, they aren't, I'm afraid. There's no Dirty Pillows for many girls. Oh. Is that because it's... Was it a 15 rather it's than an 18? 15, yeah. Yeah, uh, and the original which, was an 8. Brian De Palma was a bit weird as well. He was, <laughs> was a bit odd. Yeah. Um, but the, in that scene, in that show scene, um, is when Carrie first has her, her very first period. And mm. it's you know quite a big deal for her and all the other kids... She doesn't really understand what's going on, and it's the first time you really understand the relationship between her and her mom, as she is mm. as now as an, an old teenager. Um, and all the other kids in in the, the show scene, they all start picking on her. And in this, they video it on the phone, and that plays quite a big part in the story. Mm. Which I thought, you know, right. at least that's, that's updating it's it. Yeah, updating. it's, it's re- recognizing that the way that it played out in the previous film wasn't really going to work. Yeah. So they've they've tried to change it, but it's you no, know, it's not a significant change. It's just that mm. you know it gives it a, a more modern take, um, I suppose. But it, yeah, overall, like I say, it's well made, it's well told, it looks great. Some of the CGI in it is pretty good actually. Um, this sometimes it can look a bit corny when you've got objects floating about, but you know it looks quite natural in this. But it's just that nagging feeling that it's ultimately a rather pointless remake next up then james is reviewing blue is the warmest color uh a title that makes lawrence well and bowen furious i've heard <laughs> oh wow that's that's a that's a 90s reference yeah. you got there, Steve. <laughs> that's topical, that is. i don't watch yes. OI programs i don't know what's going on with these films anymore no 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 uh, but anyway, yes, blue is the warmest colour. We have no clips, so James is going to go straight into telling us all about that one. It's French, yeah, so, by the way, so I'm never going to watch it. Yeah, Three well... Three hours long, so... Well, there might be some in there for you, that's all I'll say. <laughs> um, blue is the warmest colour, then, yeah. Trust me. It won the uh, Palm d'Or earlier this week and was the first ever Palm d'Or that was jointly awarded to the director, uh, uh, Abdetalif Keshish. Um, and also the two main actresses uh, played by Leah Sidhu and Adele Exochopoulos. I think that's right. Um, so that was quite interesting, and, and rightfully so. Um, having seen it, it lives and dies by its two leads, um, who apparently read the script once and then had to... That, that was the only time they read the script, was they read it once and then the rest of it was them improvising and seeing what felt natural and things like that. Very, very briefly, Blue is the Warmest Colour is a coming-of-age story of a young young girl called Adele, who um, we start off seeing her in her last year at high school, um, where she discovers boys for the first time and kind of doesn't really make the connection with boys. And so she meets Emma, who is uh, a young woman slightly older than her, with blue hair, the the blue of the the title, who um, and together they then spend we we spend a few years in their company as they first discover their love for each other, um, and Adele begins to become uh, a woman, and as it says in one of the most kind of French, worldly cinema pretentious uh, IMDb summaries I've ever seen, because usually they're really quite basic. And there says Adele grows, seeks herself, loses herself, finds herself. Um, <laughs> it, 
it kind of is that kind of. I'll be honest, it's it's a three hour film. It is the full one hundred and seventy nine minutes. Um, it's NC. It's rated as an eighteen, and there is a very good reason for that. But I will just say, it it's an incredible film. It's genuinely, genuinely incredible. And I will try and talk about the film in isolation from the the controversy around the film, which I will kind of reference shortly as a film it is brilliant and i am a big fan of moody french dramas about love sex and identity last year my favorite film uh, of the year was rust and bone this follows in a in a similar kind of vein it's got a similar realist tone to it um while at the same time still still feeling kind of dreamlike at times uh, simply because of uh, the way it's beautifully shot very different though in terms uh, this film doesn't have any score in it at all which which is an interesting choice it works really well for this it's got some contemporary music playing in certain scenes and weirdly it uh, uses one of the songs that i loved most from uh Rust and Bone. So that was that kind of jolted me slightly, which is the magician remix of Licky Lee's I Follow Rivers, but enough of the soundtrack. The film itself is brilliant. Uh, it feels it hasn't got a a huge plot. It's not very groundbreaking in terms of its plot. It's in fact the film it reminds me most of uh, from this year, um apart from Rust and Bone last year is Blue Valentine, um in that it is just a realistic portrayal of a relationship, uh, birth of a relationship, death of a relationship, the kind of fallout from that as well. Um, and at no point did I spend time looking at my watch or anything like that. It, it goes along, not it's still quite a sedate pace, but it, it just kind of draws you in with some brilliant, brilliant character work from from the two main actresses who really really do inhabit their characters very very brave performances very honest performances as well and i've got this far in the review without talking about the sex and i'm very proud of myself for that but it is something i need to confront here and i'm not the type of person who is prudish about sex i'm not the type of i went as a single i'm not a single bloke a bloke on my own there um, and I went and bought a ticket and went to sit and watch this film in a room full of old people, which was slightly weird, because this film has some of the most explicit sex scenes I have seen in a mainstream uh, cinematic release. I think um, Michael Winterbottom's Nine Songs, which was the film that famously featured real sex, it is the only film I've seen which has been more explicit in terms of its sex scenes in this. There is... I'd say an early scene. It's it's about no forty five minutes an hour into the film, um, and it is right at the the start of Emma and Adele's kind of blossoming relationship, and it is literally I'm not kidding you. It is a ten minute hardcore lesbian sex scene. CC, I told you there's something for you there. Yeah, um, I can get that in the private yeah. my bedroom for free. So. <laughs> Yeah, I know, but it's the art of it. Anyway, anyway, what um, interesting, and it, it is very interesting, in a week which has seen, um, and yeah, this is terrible because I can't remember the name of the blooming actress now who's uh, uh, who's complained in America. Um, 
and I can't remember the name of the film. Fucking shambolic. Sorry, I, I just you two have thrown me off there. Anyway, there's a film called uh, Charlie something. Um, I, oh, do you know this is Charlie Danger, something like that. I don't know. Anyway, Charlie film Danger. in America. No, not that. no, it's not that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's about to be released, and um, it's been cut because. Um, they had to remove part of a sex scene and it was because the main actor in it was giving the woman um Evan Rachel Thomas oh, oh fuck me I'm terrible tonight sorry um this is I, I should have done my research properly but anyway a film in America really really vague here um the main actress has complained because a sex scene with her and her male co-star had to be cut and the bit that they cut from it was um, her receiving oral sex from the bloke. And the uh, American Cinema Rating Organization said, no, no, that can't get through. You're not having that scene in there for this rating. Him having sex with her, that was fine. People blowing each other's heads off, that was apparently fine. But her receiving oral sex was not allowed. And she was saying that America has a real problem with um, female sexuality on screen. So what I will say is it was actually quite refreshing to see a film where women were allowed to enjoy sex and have kind of natural sex and there was no that there was no misogynistic side to it there was no kind of male perspective there it was also very much Can I just to step in there yeah. though there, yeah. have you seen black swan i have seen black swan yeah so i mean because that features you know I, I, yeah, no, no, you're exactly right, and I don't know what was different about that scene than, um, and maybe it was because they weren't completely naked as well or something. I'm not entirely mm. sure. Yeah. Uh, no, no, you're right. I think Black Swan is still quite a stylized scene, and I think Black Swan's is more what you, yeah, because it's you, not you a sexy actually, sex scene, is it? It's a weird no, sex scene, creepy and weird, and I think yeah. that's also of it um it's kind of nightmarish yeah and also i think you actually see less than you think you do mm. in black swan i think it's very well edited mm. and shot and i think you see less than you think you do in this film you you, you see everything literally um and but it, it's just what i found is it's actually rather honest it, it, it's just it just decides to show two women having sex uh, and that yeah, you know, and it's it's quite honest. There's not clever cuts here and there, and it's interesting that the choice, certainly in the the earlier sex scenes, is just to kind of show them in full frame, um, which you would never see in a Hollywood film. You know, it's it's close ups on this part of the body and this part of the body, and actually no, it pulls back full frame, um, naked women have enjoying each other. What's very interesting is. The, the biggest sex scene is the one right at the beginning of the relationship. And I, I think the me trying to do a little bit of analysis here, which is rare for this podcast from me, um, was the director uses these sex scenes uh, as, as the honesty barometer of the relationship. And the longer and more open the sex scene, the healthier the relationship at that point. Now, you know, that make of the director's mind what you will, if that's what he's saying, that, you know, a great... Uh, a great relationship has to have great sex but that's that to me is the message i'm getting from that because as the relationship starts to peter out you see them kind of having more furtive fumbles uh still clothed and things like that and that's uh it clearly he identifies sex as being part of the good part of their relationship um what i will say is the the controversy side of this is 
that since the Palm Door was given to the film, both actresses have come out and said that they had a very, very difficult time working on the film. Neither of them want to work with the director again. Uh, and it does make you think, oh, okay, maybe it wasn't as kind of uh, as safe a working environment as, as it appears to be on screen. Um, but I think sometimes you have to... And I'm not, I'm, I don't know the uh, details here, I'm not belittling their experiences or anything like that, but having recently seen some Werner Herzog films, for example, sometimes great art comes from great sacrifice, and Werner Herzog half nearly killed his, his uh, crew, his actors in some of making his films. Um, Klaus Kinski nearly killed, killed Werner Herzog during the filming of a lot of those films. Doesn't stop the films themselves being utterly brilliant. And for me... That that's what I got from this film. I only found out about the controversy after I watched the film and I did a bit of research. I went into it just thinking, uh, I know this one, the Palm Door, and I know some of the uh, the reasons that it's an eighteen. But I I really really enjoyed it. It was a heartbreaking, heartbreaking um, expose of a relationship breaking down. Um, and also I would I'd say don't expect a huge amount of closure and it's very interesting it's it's french title is um the uh la vie d'adele parts one and two the, the life of adele parts one and two and it is it is quite simply this is a few chapters of a, a young woman's life um and it comes to it's just so incredible simply down to the performances uh, and, and the shooting and it is a film that I would say if you are at all in love with French cinema if you enjoy if you enjoy seeing great performances on screen basically then then watch this like Steve said earlier I, this isn't one to maybe watch with your family though um, don't don't stick it on with granny at Christmas and things like that it's it's gonna shock okay uh, so that was Blue of the Warmest Colour. Um, one last new-ish review for us. Uh, Owen saw Parkland. So just a quick quick look at that one, Owen. Yeah, very quickly, because um, like you said, it's been a while. I think it came out on Monday last week, which is the anniversary of when JFK was shot. I think that's correct. Well, I saw it on yeah. Thursday, so a bit later in the week. Um, yeah, well, as I've just said, it's... Um, about JFK's Parkland is the name of the hospital where he was taken to after he was uh, assassinated or after he was directly after he was shot. Um, yeah, I mean, I enjoyed the story in so much as it was quite interesting to see how things unraveled in the aftermath of the assassination um, from a very straight faced, true to life story. Apparently they made they went to great efforts to make sure people didn't think it was another conspiracy story or you know a fictionalized version of events. It's supposed to be um, based on fact. I think the director uh, Peter Landsman is a journalist by trade, and so he wrote the story to be as straight down the line exactly what happened. This is just the the, the sequence of the events. And to be fair, I, I mean it does convey quite well how distressing it was for the people involved, but it does come across like a journalist story. So you get lots of fact followed by evidence of fact and then that just seemed to be how the plot was put together. So you'd have one person who 
you say something, here's the evidence to demonstrate why that thing is that thing. And it's just um, a little bit tiresome, I suppose, but it, it helps to keep everything cohesive. And once you get your idea, you know, your head around, OK, so this is how the, the story works, then you just have to embrace it, really, and go with it. And, um, yeah, I, like I say, I quite enjoyed it overall. The actors in it, um, I think Zac Efron's the biggest name who's attracting attention. Uh, I didn't think he was particularly amazing. Some people seem to have said he was quite average, which I think is a bit harsh. Uh, Tom Welling is the very definition of average in this. He essentially played an angrier version of uh, his Clark Kentrell from Smallville. Um, yeah, I wasn't particularly impressed with him. Uh, who else? Cat Stevens um, played the grieving Jackie Kennedy, and she didn't really have a huge lot to do other than cry a little bit. Um, but there's one understandably, th- understandably, yeah. <laughs> but there is one scene of her standing over the body in the Parkland Hospital, which is, I mean, it's just a brutal scene. Um, it's one of these where I said he sort of conveys how distressing it was because during this, there's an interaction between. Um, between her and a nurse just moments before she just has this breakdown and it's it's really quite a powerful scene and um yeah very very disturbing as well uh, the two standout performances are james badgedale as rob oswald who is the brother of lee harvey oswald who's not really a character or a person i should say rather than a character who i've ever thought about at all before mm. um you know he's got his own tragic story because obviously what lee harvey oswald has done has affected Lee's family as well as, you know, Rob's own family and their mother, who is um, very protective of her son and is convinced that Lee Harvey Oswald was a secret agent for the government and he was ordered to do what he actually did when it's just, you know, Rob is the level-headed, down-to-earth, realises the impact of what's just happened. Um, But yeah, Paul Giamatti's performance is the standout. Uh, It plays Abraham Zafruder, who's the guy who caught on camera, you know, that video of the assassination. Mm -hmm. It's a devastating performance from him. He's just a a great actor anyway. Not really surprised that he was as good as he was, um, but perhaps good enough to get him a nod for supporting uh, supporting actor at the Oscars. I don't know, perhaps... He was he was very good. Worst thing about Parkland was the camera work. Really, just it was driving me mad. Um, it's just that they can't keep the camera steady. It's just constantly zipping all over the place. It zooms in, zooms out. There's blurred things, and then they come into focus, and then the blurred again. I really felt sick watching it. Um, yeah, I mean it was just really frustrating and, and almost ruined the film at times. Um, but, you know, overall, it's a good, interesting film. And, I mean, I didn't know a lot about the JFK assassination before I went in to see it, but now I feel like I know a bit more, which I think was the point of the film. So, yeah, it was it was quite good. If it's still showing near you and you're in, into these sort of very factual films, then it's probably one of the better types of that film I've seen. Just take some seasickness pills before you go in to see it. OK, uh, so that rounds all our um, new release reviews for this week. Uh, there's many to pick from from next week, so no doubt we'll have something for you there. We'll have another quick break, and then we'll be back with um, some recommendations for the week ahead.
So recommendations then for the week ahead. Uh, let's start with mine on television Friday night. Um, rather fittingly, at twenty past eleven on Dave is the Fast and the Furious. Um, obviously, with Paul Walker's passing, what's the film that kind of made him the most? Well, made him famous. Uh, it's an enjoyable film as well. James certainly likes the whole, whole franchise, so. Yeah, I've I've not seen the second one. I've still not watched the second one, but yeah. No, is, it's, is that the one he... Because he did one of them without That's Vin the one Diesel, he did without Vin Diesel, yeah. yeah. The second one was him, uh, and I've heard it's it's not a great film, you know, just in general. So uh, I will watch it at some point. Uh, I, I'm tempted to get the box set now. But uh, yeah, no, the first, it, it, it's big, dumb, fun action. Um, and yeah, out of that kind of genre... I like it. I, yeah, what I can't I, help it. What I, was, what I was really going to recommend—it's just that one. I noticed it was on and it tied in with what's happened this week. But what I was going to recommend is ITV Two, eight o'clock on Friday. Is Ocean's Eleven? Uh, it is a fun film. The second and third ones just get a bit silly and a bit boring. When you got Julia Roberts playing a character who looks like Julia Roberts, who then plays Julia Roberts to get them into somewhere mm. where they need to be for part of the that's just dumb but the first film is good fun um with you know the actors seem like they're having fun making the film which translates to the film and you know a good plot a few twists in it and it's, it's enjoyable without being too much to concentrate on and don cheadle's cockney accent as well yeah. don't yeah. forget don cheadle's cockney don, accent don cheadle cockney don cheadle yeah great actor Fucking terrible accent. Oh, I loved yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> there must be, you know, Danny Dyer can play Cockney. Just about. Imagine. Not in Run For Your Wife, you can't. Imagine <laughs> that. Take Don Cheadle out of Ocean's Eleven and put in Danny Dyer as the Cockney. How <sighs> different film. Yeah, it's a... It's mind, a mind slow. <laughs> Anyway, James, what are you what are you telling people to watch? Okay, yeah, on Monday, released uh, on DVD and Blu-ray, is my favourite horror film of the year, which doesn't say too much because I've not seen that many horror films and um, I've I don't really like modern horror films, which is why I think I like The Conjuring so much because it felt like a 1970s horror film, which for me is the heyday of the genre. Uh, the Conjuring stars uh, Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga as two kind of inspired by real life uh, paranormal investigators and they go and investigate one of their famous cases of, of the Warrens, uh, uh, a family house terrorised by some terrifying presence. I really enjoyed The Conjuring. Um, I know Owen liked it as well and I, th- I felt that its period detail was spot on. It actually felt like a a horror film from the 70s. And it had some good, sympathetic performances from everyone involved. Far too often in recent horror films, I've just hated the central characters, which gave me nothing to to root for. But I I was rooting for the characters in this interesting film. Yeah, I I enjoyed it. Owen, I I, I remember you enjoyed it as well. Yeah, I I thought it was really good. I think it's probably my favourite horror of the year as well. There we go. Really directed by James, yeah. yeah. Directed by James Wan, who's uh, who started off with the uh, Final Destination films, but I know was also involved in Insidious, mm-hmm. and interestingly, is the director of Fast and the Furious Seven as well. So, 
I've seen the cast for that this week. I didn't realise mm-hmm. they had the people involved that they've got. Yeah. Because it's, it's not just like... It's, it's, it's almost it's like an Expendables like, film. It, it is becoming a new Expendables, yeah, because they've got um, Tony Jaa and obviously the state who's yeah. crossing over. <laughs> and did I see Kurt um, Russell was in it as well? Yeah, Kurt Russell's as well. It, it, it is, it's becoming like the expendable with car, Expendables with Cars, which, mm. I'll be honest, no bad thing. Has me more intrigued there, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, Owen, what are you, what's your recommendation? Um, well, I am also recommending a film that's on Friday evening. Um, that'll make three films there. Eh? Uh, but Taken, as I was talking about Six Bullets earlier in the podcast, Taken, the... Uh, Luke Besson film uh, directed by Pierre Morel starring Liam Neeson as an all-action hero, would you believe? Um, is on, yeah, it's on more 4 at 9pm. Um, I would suggest watching Taken and then watching Six Bullets afterwards if you've got time. Two very good sort of CIA mercenary agents who travel to Europe and stop some criminals who are trying to traffic children. That's essentially the plot for both. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that's um, that's all for this week's podcast then. Uh, so thanks to everyone who's listened. Also thanks to everyone who's contributed anyway. And we'll be back next week with another podcast for you. The failed critics are James Diamond, Steve Norman, and Owen Hughes, with original music provided by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. You can find us at failedcritics.com at Facebook at facebook.com slash failedcritics and on Twitter at at failedcritics.